Hello. Uh, yes, Mrs. Gardner. <laughs> What's going on, man? Not too much, buddy. How you doing? I'm doing all right. What's hey, guys. Hello. What's up, man? Yeah, not much. Not much. Can you hear me? Yep. You sound a little bit muffled. Well, it's this microphone I have. That's true. You're used to doing shit live, right? <laughs> I don't have the fancy mic like Scott. He's got the big lots mic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have those up here. But apparently we don't have barbecues. No, no, you don't. You know, just slathering something with barbecue sauce does not make it a barbecue. No, oh, yes, you're right. It it's got to have a rub and smoke. <laughs> That's what then she said. It's barbecue. Well, I was thinking about it, and it's like I live in a world where they've decided to change the definition of literally to include literally and figuratively. Yes. <laughs> but if I call something barbecue because I, I cook it on that grill that they call a barbecue, I'm wrong. So you're telling me you're going on a campaign for barbecue equality. Yes. <laughs> we, have to define, we have to redefine traditional barbecue for you. Well, there is no such thing as traditional barbecue anymore. Oh, yes, my there God. Is. No, there, there really is. isn't. Cause, because the vernacular now is that you, you may call something barbecued and have your strict rules for it but when somebody says a barbecue the idea is a cookout then it's a cookout that is what the pop, but that is what the vernacular accepts or now. or is grilling out but you know what? what generally people who are invited to other people's homes <laughs> appreciate it and oh, don't wow. criticize because they use the word differently than they would yeah i did i did not say i didn't appreciate oh i was it. listening i, I was i listening. said i said it was incorrect the <laughs> That's the only part of this I'll side with Spatero on, is you were a guest in the man's home. Well, in his backyard. I guess he didn't actually yeah, I, I don't think he ever actually went in the home. <laughs> yeah, I walked in, and they all said, let's go outside. We don't want yeah, to stay well, here wrong. That should have told you something right there. There was, there was too, much, too much Robinson and Gardner yeah, remains point, I, laying around. I'm pretty sure I heard uh, somebody, somebody say, oh, yeah, I'm not letting these people in my house. Are you kidding? <laughs> you guys haven't seen what those two look like when they first wake up in the morning. You know, that is true, and I hope to never do so. Unfortunately, I can never, I can never truthfully say that again. <laughs> Although, I do have to say, again, everybody who wants to be put up at uh, uh, the Rifenplex, if they're coming to JekyllCon, is more than welcome to. does make it more tempting. If it wasn't right around Christmas time, I would think that, uh, that it would be more of a, uh, of, of a possibility. Mm-hmm. Or do you call it Christmas time down by you, or is there, do I have to call it Yule time? We call it, we call it Barbie Christmas. <laughs> Back to the bin. Hey, Paul, could you do a brother a solid? What do you need, buddy? Change your f- picture already. Never. <laughs> Never. That's a, it's a very Dinner for Geeks picture. I like it. <sighs> Just put that thing on a spit and run it over. Would that be barbecue? I don't know. Uh, yeah. Depends on if you rub and smoke. If I, had that, if I had that thing over the open fire, you would have been happy then, huh, Ron? <laughs> I'm just saying. Is barbecuing cryptids even legal? <laughs> What they don't know is legal. Cop I'm sure it's been done in the backwoods of Alabama or Tennessee or something at some point. 
Hey, Paul, let me just say this about barbecuing. You're not the first person to pull this one on me. I had I was in Scotland, and they said, oh, we're going to have a barbecue this Saturday. I said, awesome. And they pulled out the grill, put the charcoal in it, and then opened up a can that said American hot dogs. And they were like giant Vienna <laughs> sausages. No, you know, like, those- God. Honestly, <laughs> if I could have done that just for the comedy value, I would have. <laughs> So I'm sorry, I haven't heard the episode yet. Are you are you maintaining that what we had at Paul's was not a barbecue? It was not a barbecue. It was a it was a, a cookout. Yeah. What the hell's the difference? That's oh man, bingo! <laughs> and and my my argument is when I go to when I go to Home Depot and I bought that piece of equipment that I cooked the food it on, it was in the barbecue center. Therefore, the that center. is a barbecue. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm failing to understand what the difference is. If you cook outside, you are barbecuing. No, you're grilling. But it's the same thing. Barbecue, no, gr- no. It's, it's a synonymous Barbe- term. Barbecue is the product of barbecuing. Hamburgers and hot dogs are the product of grilling. I think, I think 30 years ago you had a point, but I think conventional uh, talk has become that anything cooked on a grill That's now right. is barbecue. Like right. I said, we've had barbecue equality. <laughs> I'm going to change my profile picture to two hot dogs on a red square. And again, when, 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 or, you, or you get a, a hot dog and a hamburger and put a rainbow thing on. <laughs> but uh, in, in a world where somebody can say, I literally shit my pants when they did not shit their pants, and have it be acceptable dramatically. Well, you don't know that. That was, that was a, There was a whole... I don't know which comedian it was, but he did a whole bit on that where somebody came over and says, you know, I literally shit my pants. He says, really? What'd you do with the pants? No, 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 no. I literally shit them. And, and, uh, so, so basically but, the concept is if you if people are stupid enough, we have to agree with them. That's yeah. That's, and that, that actually, and bumps. the language changes by the way, based on stupidity. Hey, we pronounce karaoke the way we do because of stupidity. And how is that supposed to be pronounced? Cause I've never heard it any other way. Karaoke. Oh, is is that a Japanese? Uh... Yeah, it's karaoke. It means empty orchestra, and uh, the Japanese pronunciation is karaoke, which Americanized should be karaoke, but not karaoke. There's no e in the middle of that word. Wow. Did anybody ask Carrie what she thought about this? Nobody. That Carrie is okay. Why is there a gigantic moving truck in front of my house? Oh, you didn't know. <laughs> you may you may want to look for your wife really fast. Yeah, no, Mrs. Reifen. Jeez, I think I think Garrison's getting ready for college. Yeah, foolish. Did anybody me. get the picture? What picture? Paul's barbecue. Hold on, I didn't see that yet. Uh, Paul's barbecue literally gave me the, the beatus. <laughs> the beatus. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's, there's a uh, there's a, a you know. A, a chain restaurant. I don't know if they have them down south. Called uh, Famous Dave's Barbecue. Nope. And there's one not too far from here. And over there, apparently, they call it barbecue if they put enough barbecue sauce on things. Mm. Well, you know, to back you up, I went and looked. Uh, I looked in the dictionary online, and they've got <laughs> basically Jesus. anything, any meat you put over a flame, even vegetables you put <laughs> over a flame, can be called a barbecue. Last rest, my the defense rests. <laughs> However. I have to. My response has to be that that is obviously a great example of the ignorance in society taking over. <laughs> and here's where we could have a meeting of the minds, because I agree with you on that. But society's <laughs> definition of barbecue has changed. That's. I'm not saying what you're saying is incorrect. I'm just saying it has evolved over time. 
It has evolved, apparently. Paul, all I'm going to say is that I'm from the South. There's a certain are you, are you, thing we from like Massachusetts or something. No, can't you tell I by the accent? I was born and raised here. And barbecue is a certain thing down here. The same as iced tea. Yeah, but you know what? Did you have iced tea? Last I checked, you weren't down there. You were up here. (laughs) My house, my definition. Did you have iced tea at Paul's house? Uh, No, I did not have iced tea. That would be a whole other debate. I do have iced tea, but I don't know what the definition is down there. Sweet tea is iced tea. Or yeah, just tea. If, if, if there's not enough sugar to give you the beatus, then it, it doesn't really count as iced tea. So what, what if they make it with crystal light? Oh, then that's just ah, it's wrong. It's just so wrong. Okay. I do happen to be a big fan of Snapple iced tea. Oh my god. So that might have just you know been enough to put you over the top and send yeah. you out of here. Of course, you know we got our DJ here who. Posted on Facebook that the owners of Willie's Weenie Wagon were retiring after 40 years, and he spent time seeing them. And I'm like, they've been dead for years. They, you did not do that. So Southern just doesn't make sense to a lot of people. <laughs> By the way, Scott. Yes. You are wrong. Oh no. Yeah, Daisy Dukes. Not yes. because of Dukes of Hazard. Daisy Dukes goes all the way back to Little Abner. No, it doesn't. Ooh. That is not. Tr- that is wrong. <laughs> If you sort on Wikipedia, it's got to be true. Oh my God! What are you? What are you pulling that crap out of your butt for? Just saying. No, it sounded Daisy, good. Dukes, Daisy Dukes are from Daisy. That's why they call them Daisy Duke. She's Daisy Duke. Daisy Duke is not in Little Abner. Daisy May is in Little Abner. You're correct. <laughs> <laughs> and they never called them Daisy Mays. It doesn't. It suck when somebody actually has the right answer. <laughs> Oh, Scott! I just, I just, I was Scott, just pointing you, out. You, you, you hurt me deeply when you posted on Facebook. Do <laughs> <laughs> what? He posted the uh, Paul's barbecue. Literally gave me the beats. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Paul is now offended officially. <laughs> literally, well, he's literally offended. Yes. Or figuratively. Yeah. I'm not sure which, but apparently now well, I can say literally now. and just have you know you could just. Oh, did I lose everyone? I'm going to start saying literally yep. in front of everything now. Yes. You can. You can. I was literally flying over the sea. <laughs> you literally can say it in front of literally everything. <laughs> figuratively. Does figuratively even exist anymore, or do we just get to throw that out? Well, when was the last time you heard somebody under the age of 30 say figuratively? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, we just blamed it all on the millennials. I see what you did there. That's well. That's where the literally definition that's change ageism. came from. It's ageism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was at work today, and call uh, the social the, justice warriors. One of the people I was working with, and I forget how the subject even came up, but the, the subject of birth years, and and she said that she was born in 1990, and I literally had to literally, <laughs> literally really <laughs> mean it, bit my tongue to keep myself from saying "shut the fuck up." I don't want to talk to you. I was like, <laughs> wow. You know, if if you were born after a particular year, I, I'm really getting to the point. And, and, you know, we really needed to launch our Get Off My Lawn podcast, but I really just don't have any interest in what your opinions are. You know what I mean? Yeah. I haven't figured out exactly what year that is yet, but it's oh, somewhere in the late 80s, I'm thinking. I'm, I'm earlier than that. If you were born after Return of the Jedi came out, right. uh, <laughs> if you were one. not alive to be able to see any Star Wars film in the theater in the first run, I want nothing to do with it. Yep. 
Yep. We, we all have our, our line in the sand. Mine is if you were born after the Mets won their last World Series in 1986. I hate football. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when was that? Daryl Strawberry, Doc Gooden. Daryl. When was that? 1986. 86. Okay. Yeah, I could hang with that. Again, right around the same time. Well, Scott, I don't know if I, you know, I, I don't know if you listen to uh, uh, Tales of the JSA or not, but uh, I've gotten rather a lot of shit one time on that show for saying exactly that. That. Uh, oh, I remember when you got that. Yeah. Yeah, you know that basically that. that you know these Star Wars fans. You know, I will freely admit that there are Star Wars fans out there that know infinitely more about Star Wars than I do. Mm-hmm. But I said something to the effect of, that's all well and good, but my ass was in a theater seat in 77 seeing Star Wars on the big screen. I forget exactly what how I worded it, but essentially is like, you know, like I'm, a, I'm a bigger Star Wars fan for that. Or something to that effect. And oh, Jesus Christ, did the floodgates of, of feedback open, I'm telling you. And most of it was not positive. And, yeah, and, and I understand, I understand that criticism. You know, I mean, I'm trying to think of something that that predates me. There's so there's so little. Uh, <laughs> but let's just, fire? okay. Fire? Let's go with you fired the wheel. Ten Commandments. But we're going to say James Bond. Magna you know, Carta. I'm a big James Bond fan, but they were coming out with James Bond movies before I was before I was born. Uh, James. So so. I could see where somebody who was in on the bottom floor might feel like, well, I've been there longer than you. I have more of a proprietary interest mm-hmm. in it. And the same thing with, like, say, the Planet of the Apes movies. You know, I saw all of them in the movie theater. Right. There might be somebody who's just as big a fan as me, but I have a certain proprietary feeling towards them, having seen every one of them in the movie theater. Kind of getting in on the ground floor makes you, you know, yep. feel a little possessive of it. Yep. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Star Wars is my, I, I have a, uh, I have a new neighbor. This is so funny. I have a new neighbor and uh, I'm on the homeowner association I, for a while there. I was the homeowner association and I had to take him his mailbox keys and his pool key and everything the other day. I went over there and he had a Star Wars shirt on and I try not to say anything because nowadays everybody's wearing a Star Wars shirt mm-hmm. and we talked for a while, talked for a while just about homeowner stuff. And then I finally just had to go, how serious are you about that shirt? <laughs> <laughs> he's like I'm telling you dude if you if you don't listen to tale or yeah to tales you need to listen to some of the early episodes because that was the other one we got into I mean, and they may have yeah. actually dovetailed with each other i'm not sure but that was the other one as we got into this discussion and it became a thing that threatened to take over the show at one point about geek elitism mm-hmm. and oh and, that was that was when you when you hated the uh the smallville episode with the justice society on it i remember getting involved in that one <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember. I don't remember where it spun. I guess you could be right. I really don't remember where it spun out of, other than I remember it involving T-shirts. Mm. And and as Scott's saying, you know, everybody these these days is wearing a, a, a geek T-shirt. And there are times when I I want to challenge them. I want to like make them prove like like they they deserve to wear it. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's oh, it's yeah. like that scene in in. Um, Rise of the Planet of the Apes. You know, it's like if they don't prove it, I want to walk over to them and just rip it off of them and swing it around and <laughs> you know and challenge them. And like in that movie, it's like you know what the hell, you know? Because I see everybody. Do- there, there was this kid not long ago that was wearing a, a Green Lantern T-shirt right around the time that I realized that they were all wearing them because of that fucking Big Bang Theory show. And he was wearing the Green Lantern shirt, 
And I just asked him, I said, oh, you know, I, I see your Green Lantern shirt. Which one's your favorite? Which one what? Which Green Lantern? Uh, uh, there's more than one. I'm like, oh, Jesus Christ, take the shirt off. You know? Get it off. Get see? it off right now. Right yeah, now. Yeah, exactly. And mine had a different ending because I said, I literally said to the guy, literally <laughs> said to the guy, uh, how serious are you about that shirt? And he's like, oh, very serious. And I was like, explain. He's like, well, uh, let me show you. And he's got, he, we were, there was this crate in front of us the whole time. And uh, he opens the crate and it's a freaking Boba Fett costume he's building. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, was Dave he's a 5 He's a 501st-er. Yeah. yeah, he's he's he's, a, he's, he's Yeah, he's on the list. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, oh, okay. Well, uh, all right, mm-hmm. I got you. So, so you're, you are, you're that serious. Okay. There's, there's things, like there's degrees. I, uh, there's certain things, like when we talk comics, I mean, we cover so many different books on this show. There's certain things that I consider myself a fan of uh, that I'm not totally knowledgeable of everything about it. It's just, and and usually, you know, I'll come right out and admit it that I'm more of a fan of the concept than I have uh, than I am in execution. Uh, I think that came up with uh, you know Captain Marvel, saying right. you know I, I I like the character, I like what I know about it, but I haven't read that much of it. But I still consider myself a fan of the character. Mm-hmm. So to me, the whole thing is not to pretend that you're some sort of expert on it when you're not. If that makes any sense, mm-hmm. you know, just just don't try and portray yourself as a diehard if you're not, you know, if you, no. you but you're allowed to be a fan of something, sure, you know, and and not have it rule your life. Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> well, that's that's the world we <laughs> live in. Be. Unfortunately, yeah. most people aren't in that world. We are the minority on that one. <laughs> who's who's devouring something in there? Not me. I'm just here. Hold on. Let me finish. That could just be me. Ah, finish, yeah. finish chewing. Uh, Jeff is just Sorry. doing nothing to be in my good graces today. Maybe I should start trying not to be in your good graces. Yeah, maybe you go should. Ahead, go ahead, I thought go you ahead, were. Go ahead, go ahead and get it all out of the way now. I thought you were trying to not be in my good graces. No. Sorry, man. <laughs> I thought this was Look, the attempt. So, so now what's the deal now, Jeff? You will not be there tomorrow for your birthday celebration? I will, I, I will, I will not be. Well, my birthday was this past Sunday. Yeah. And I'm not going to be at the podcast this week because I'm filling in for the other trivia geek in town. And um, you weren't at the podcast last week because... I was camping with my kids. And you weren't at the podcast the week before because... I was, was at, at a barbecue. the podcast the week before. Is it a barbecue? <laughs> Everybody was at the podcast the week before that. Are you sure? Yeah. Then you missed the week before that. You've missed a shit ton of weeks lately. We've all missed a shit ton of weeks lately. No, not all. We have? I no, those I'm, of in, po- I'm in the podcast and, and I still drove to New York the next day. Yeah, that's true. Oh. <laughs> yeah, and you weren't there. All right, so basically you're saying you're a bigger podcaster than I am. That's right. You have no, no, no right to wear that podcasting shirt. That's right. That's right. That's right. Take that dinner for geek shirt off. Shirt off. What are you, geek number two? Back out again? Yeah. yeah. Am I being demoted? Is that what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Matt, you're, gonna, you're actually going to fall behind Matt. This yeah, is actually an intervention. Wow. How can, how can I possibly fall behind the person who actually resigned from being the, the backup geek? That was Sit so the letter sweet. and everything. So, yeah. Does this, does this so mean Jeff is officially no longer your minion? Uh, no, it means he'll, he may never make his way out of being my minion. Yeah, I was, only, I was only a henchman for a very brief period of time, but because yeah. the minion that I recruited to replace myself as the minion didn't do a good job in recruiting other minions. That's true. Unless, unless, unless his iPad counts as a minion. Um, <laughs> so, but Maybe it does. 
Is it time for us to start talking bad about Ryan now? Oh, no, I don't do that. Ryan, who's, who's I don't that? I don't do that. I don't know this Ryan of whom you speak. Uh, what's it called? Yeah. Yeah, what's it called? There's, there's, there's a fourth key? Come, I mean, I... <laughs> yeah, that's where that four comes in. It's the four, yeah. Hmm. It's interesting. I, I don't think I've ever heard him speak. <laughs> that's right. I forgot he does not exist to Paul. I forgot. Oh, that's right. I forgot. He's a dead man. Oh. There's so much other stuff to talk about. Well, I do find that when I listen most, you know, there's a lot more local politics than national. It's so funny you say that because I get so chewed out over being too national. I don't know. You think you're syndicated or what, but you need to talk about local stuff more. <laughs> well, the one the local thing stuff that, is usually when I switch it off. Yeah. The one thing that I'm sure of is when you're doing things in front of an audience and it could be an audience as small as my podcast audience. Uh, somebody's not going to like what you do. <laughs> it that doesn't matter. That is true. And, and, and the amazing thing is somebody's not going to like what you do and yet listen to you every day. Yep. Just to be, just to, just to feed off of their hatred. Which, which I, I find to be amazing. But, but you know what? It's, it's, there's something about it that just pulls you in because I've actually fallen victim to it myself. I was getting really, really annoyed at uh, Mike Francesa, who does the uh, the sp- afternoon sports show here. It's syndicated, so I don't know if you get it down there or not. He's so uh, arrogant. No. <laughs> He's so arrogant and dismissive of of his listeners, and I found myself listening to get annoyed at him. Nice. And I, I finally had to say, "What am I doing? Why am I wasting my time?" He annoys me, and I stopped listening. But it took a while for me to actually come to that realization. Yeah, yeah. So, but there are people who who feed off that, though. Yeah, that's the whole reason my relationship with Scott has lasted this long. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Ronald does feed off his hatred, so, and I'm and I'm willing to to feed him his hatred, so it, it works out. Scott's an enabler. It's a, it's a symbiotic and, thing. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Back to the Bins. <laughs> I'm Paul Spataro, and I am joined by my normal partner in crime, Mr. Scott H. Gardner. I'm normal. Normal! <laughs> well, as normal as you get. Oh, okay. And we are joined today by three of the dinner three geeks guys. <laughs> Why don't now, you just now. each introduce yourselves now? Uh, my name's Scott Rifen. I'm a Virgo. My hobbies are walking on the beach. Uh, gazing at the moon and feeling starfish between my toes. Ew. <laughs> then there's Ron, the barbecue hater, Sadowski. No, I love barbecue. Um, That's why was... I hated what you did. <laughs> the in- should I say Ron, the ingrate, Sadowski? <laughs> Whoa. See, I can't defend that. Wow. Yeah. Well, this, this is this is Ron that uh, actually drove to New York just to to meet you. So. No, I, right. I don't believe that for a second. <laughs> I, be, I believe it conveniently worked out with your with your plans with your girlfriend. Hey. And I'm happy that it did. Don't get me you wrong. You drove all the way to New York just to meet Paul? Just meet Paul. Well, actually. Yeah. Wow. Actually, you just really need Chris. some hobbies, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> I should meet Chris. <laughs> but and no. I'm sure when you met Chris, you said, I thought you'd be taller. <laughs> Which Chris? All Either girls. one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Good night. God bless. Uh, I'm Ron uh, Sadowski, uh, and I really have nothing to describe here. <laughs> you I mean, know why? 
Because you just run. Just, just run. Just and you're in the wind tunnel, apparently. And then we have Scott's minion. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Jeff Doak, Rush Chairman. Damn glad to meet you. Nice. Now, who, Ron, Ron and Jeff, which one of you caught the abuse for your, uh, your synopsis when just the two of you were on? That would be me. I think I'm still doing it in some <laughs> alternate universe. <laughs> you, oh, you and, no, Dr. Bell, come on. Yes. You and Bill are doing your version of dueling banjos with, uh, with Marvel Team-Up and uh, Apollo Smile. And there, are 30, there are 36 little spots of green ink in the forearm of this particular frame of the comic. It's just amazing <laughs> spacing on, on this ink. So, so anyway, <laughs> we could just keep on shooting the breeze. I'm fine with that. Or we could just jump into comics. What do you guys want to do? I would like to jump into comics. I enjoy comics, Alex, and... Uh... That's what I would like to do. And Scott needs to go to bed. And, and I've got to get up at 3.20 <laughs> in the morning. So, yeah. All right. So uh, you have our Marvel today, Scott. And the oldest comic book. Huh? And the oldest. Is it? I'm pretty sure. Uh, oh, cool. 1976. I'm trying to. to and a bizarre I'm at a loss for what our third told. book is. I just. Hmm. And a bizarre Bond what? Rash, or so I'm told. <laughs> yeah, oh, Vigilante. Yeah, well, it's, it's the oldest by a good deal. Yeah. Oh, I, oh that's right. Ron's got a Vigilante. I forgot that was Ron's thing. Um, I you, thought Ron was going to go. You picked a book for what it's worth. You picked a book that I bought new off the shelf. Never read it. Me? Yes. Do you know why I picked this book? No, but I know you said you had a story as to why. Yes. Uh, you know, I was originally going to just pull a random book off the spinner rack, as many of you know. I have a a the spinner rack that I bought comics off of as a kid is now in my possession, and I've loaded it up with a bunch of comics that people have given me for the years, old and new. And, uh, you know, not, not stuff hey, that I'm normally... Hey, could you get me some back. out of the fridge, too, please? <laughs> Somebody mixing a drink here? Yeah. I'm just making all kinds of noise in the background, aren't I? It's that Bluetooth! <laughs> um, so so you have your, your spinner rack. Yeah, and I was going to just spin it, close my eyes, grab something, and uh, and that was going to be my book. But then I remembered I wanted to... <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> spin it, close your eyes, and grab something. <laughs> and it was going to be a book! Okay. Uh, but... Then I remembered I had this book. I had pulled it out for a discussion that I had with Scott Gardner on the fabulous Earning My Ears podcast, which is a Walt Disney World-centric podcast. In case you don't know, it's a part of the Two True Freaks Network. Get that plug in there. Yes. And um, I decided to use it instead, and there are several reasons. One, last year at Jekyll Comic Con, the first annual Jekyll Comic Con, the second of which is coming up December 12th at the Jekyll Island Convention Center. How about that? More plugs. They should, and, they should pay you some money for that one. <laughs> And I'm on the payroll. I'm on the payroll. Um, I was there. We had a dinner for geeks table. And right across the way was a guy selling tons and tons and tons of back issues. One of the things he had was, it was one of those things where uh, you buy 10 books, they're a dollar each. You buy 20, they're 50 cents each. And I found like 13 I wanted. And I figured, well, seven more and I'll get them for 10 bucks instead of 13. So let me go ahead and do that. So... I found this book in there, and it fascinated me for a couple of reasons. One, it came out in 1976, as you mentioned, but the the logo lettering on the front was very reminiscent of Star Wars, which of course wouldn't come out for another year. But on top of that, it it was it had a little bit of a Star Wars vibe in the cover art to me, which again a year before Star Wars, and it's written and illustrated by Howard Chaykin, who of course drew the Star Wars adaptation the first several issues after that of the Marvel Star Wars series. So I thought, well, this is this means something. And so I bought it, kept it, had it sitting around, didn't read it. And one day we were re-watching Big Hero 6 at home. 
And there's a scene where they go to uh, what's the, what's the rich kid's name? Quick, never seen it. I don't oh. remember his name. Fred. Fred, thank you. They go to Fred's house, and they're all picking up old comics and reading them. And one of them is holding this book, Marvel Premiere 32, featuring Monarch Starstalker. So I thought, for all of those reasons, this issue must have some significance in my life. And and actually, though, and we're going to discuss the book, obviously, when you do your synopsis and everything. But uh, this character of uh, Kurt, uh, Kurt Hammer, mm-hmm. boy, he looks like Mark Hamill to me. <laughs> I agree with you on that. I thought the same thing. In fact, he looks a little bit of a cross between Mark Hamill and the Starkiller kid who shows up in early Star- Marvel Star Wars, who's kind of a uh, Luke Skywalker analog mm-hmm. for a story. Yeah. Uh, and he actually does look a lot like him with the big freckles that they draw on him. Yeah, I was never a big fan of the Archie Andrews freckles on a uh, character that's supposed to look realistic, <laughs> though. No, I'm with you on that, but that's a Chaken thing. Well, we'll you know, Ron's a much bigger Chaken fan than I am, so I'll let him answer for all that. I'll I'll just go out on a limb and say you're all bigger Chaykin fans than I am. <laughs> What's wrong with Chaykin? I am not a fan. I do not like his art style at all. At all? Ooh. At all. I mean, did you ever? I mean, because he's changed a lot. Not really. And... <laughs> what? <laughs> not really. He, I was reading this thing, and I'm going, okay, yeah, I see American flag here. Uh, yeah, yeah, I see the no, shadow. It's... I see... No, yeah, I mean... Be- it looks like Chaykin. Like... Yeah, no, but I mean his his la- you know as often happens his latter day stuff uh, somewhere along the line I I don't I'll agree with Paul that his you know modern stuff for lack of a better term I I don't care for because he did a uh, I don't know if it was Avengers or what it was called but it was oh no you're talking about the the fifties Avengers yeah, yeah. that's that sucked I mean it just I looked at it and I was like wow what happened to Howard Chaykin it, it was just awful but Chaykin from this era with the exception of Star Wars number one which even that I see the potential in but he was in some weird trippy experimental phase with Star Wars number one but with the exception of that particular book I, I rather like early Howard Chaykin I think Chaykin is a good storyteller. Mm-hmm. I think he paces a story well, and he gets his 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 meaningful poses out of it. I hate the final renditions. Maybe if you took his pencils and put a really strong ink, you know, like oh, absolutely. I wonder what it would look like if you had like Bob Layton ink. Well, here here's all you got to do is look at Star Wars number two because when he's teamed with Leia Loha, that's that's beautiful. I mean, it's it's yep. gorgeous stuff. He's a hell of a layout guy. I'll, I'll completely agree with you, but it, it all depends on the inker that he's paired with. Because, you know, the, the thing that I'll hold up is, like, to me, the pinnacle of, of Chaykin was his shadow four-issue mini. And even parts of that are a little bit rough because he's just, he gets a little too trippy with himself sometimes. And, uh, yeah, it, it can be a little bit too... Um, angular, I guess, would be the way to describe it. You know what I mean? A little too blocky, and that—that's not really my my preferred. I, I like stuff that that flows a little bit more. I have a problem with his inking. I guess this is probably something we should save for the review of the actual issue. Sure. But, uh, although, let me. Well, I'll I'll save the problem with his inking for later. I will just say this: uh, there's no smarter move in comic book history than to experiment with a brand new art style when you're drawing the one book that is supposed to save the entire company. <laughs> <laughs> you, want, you know what, we, we, we're getting caught up in this, and, and I do want to continue this conversation, but why don't you do your synopsis first, and then we can kind of get specific. My synopsis. 
All right, Marvel premiere number 32 featuring Monarch Starstalker. It's always winter on Small Storm King, on Small King 2, but that's a different planet and a different story. It's a small world of rocks and ice. She's the most remote of the frontier planets. However, there's a guy, a very special visitor out there today. He gets met with some thugs, but the thugs are put aside by a man who kicks complete and total ass everywhere, Monarch Starstalker. And you can tell he's cool and kicks total ass because he's got a flowing purple cape. Monarch Starstalker is in town for a reason. He puts the sheriff off and he runs off to a fancy restaurant where some guys come in and say, hey, you beat up our boys. We're going to jump all over you. And another fight ensues. Starstalker puts them down because that's just who he is. But he impresses a local filly. And the local filly invites her back to his place for a little fun in the sun. A little romance in the snow. A roll in the snow, if you will. She then has him, before he beds her down, tell him his entire origin story, which seems far more interesting than the actual story being told in this issue, which is that Monarch Star Starker, Star Starker, was... <laughs> Easy for you to say. Yeah. Was an intergalactic space worker. He got hit by a bolt of electricity. Electricity, electricity. That's right. It burnt his entire nervous system. The doctors left him for dead, but the engineers and the technical crew went, well, let's see if we can do something with this corpse. So they took and built an entire synthetic nervous system for him. However, the synthetic nervous system didn't fit in his body. They made it into a robot falcon, which makes perfect sense. Wow. So, it, would, it, you know, it would make perfect sense if it was blue. Yeah, well, that's true. And he's out there. He's looking for a guy who's killed people off-world. It's a very, uh, the synopsis is very Rick Deckard, very Blade Runner-y. And uh, he's after the guy. And people around know him. And people around, you know, he's an old boy from back there. Some of them like him because he's an old boy from out there. Other people knew that he was a psycho from minute one. He goes into town, and there it is. The guy, the killer, Kurt Hammer, who looks amazingly like Mark Hamill, again, a year before Star Wars. He takes people hostage, but Monarch Starstalker will have none of it. None of it, I tell you, as he rushes into town, takes him out. I mean, that's just, you know, I'm being very brief here. Takes him out in the middle and of the snow. Causes an avalanche, which we'll get into in a little bit, because I here's what I enjoy. The avalanche portion of this was so exciting, because he's cornered, you know, there's an avalanche overhead, and the sh gunshots, the, the uh, random gunshots fired by the bad guy what caused the avalanche. But the avalanche was so exciting, Monarch Star Starkle starts to point out that there's an avalanche, but he can't finish the word because the narrator in the yellow boxes decides to finish it for him. <laughs> avalanche! It reminds me of some of the high school football play-by-play -play that we do, where the play-by-play -play guy is trying to explain this, you know, he's trying to describe a guy running into the end zone, and the color guy keeps going, you know, he's still the 20, the three, touchdown, touchdown, touchdown! And so, that was the narrator. Was Barry's, that a swipe? He picks him up, huh? Was that a swipe? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, because you've never done color. Am I right or am I wrong? did for the first two years. Thank you. Oh, for well, right. other than that, you didn't do color. Uh, no, I don't think you're one of the ones. And plus, you don't talk like that. You don't go, touchdown! So that having been said, uh, he basically takes the guy back, makes him makes him bring his girlfriend back. She dies. He carries the body of the girlfriend back, leaves the guy strapped back in the snow, and uh, collects his reward. They say, hey, what about your dame that you betted down? Don't you want to say bye to her? And he says, no, just tell her, you know, thanks for the good times. And Monarch Stostarker... Stost <laughs> I can't say it. Monarch Starstalker, Bounty Hunter Supreme, takes off for another world with his robot falcon nervous system. The end. She she doesn't die. No. He no, the dies. Guy's girlfriend he dies. makes he makes her him carry her, and then he he dies, and then Monarch carries her the rest of the way. 
Oh, I thought he was carrying the girl because he, he said she needs a doctor fast. Oh, and then he said died yesterday of pneumonia. I thought she died. No, you're so right. He you died. You got him, huh? Died of yesterday of pneumonia. Well, that's not getting him. That's him being dead. No, you're right. I'm wrong. I'm sorry. I misread that. Oh, it's, you know what? Easily misread, honestly. It is. Well, let me just say this. There's a lot. We talked earlier about what a, a good layout guy uh, uh, Howard Chaikin is. One of the problems with this book is it is so damn dark. It's almost like he drew the pencils and then poured ink all over it and wiped it off. Yeah, there are points where it and looks it's, like his India ink spilled. Yeah, it's just it's an incredibly dark book, and for that reason, sometimes it's hard to tell what's going on in the thing. And again, that that goes back to where I think it, it could really it would really be helped from my perspective by a different anchor. So uh, somebody else thinking this would have been would have been a vast difference. It would have been a lot clearer, a lot cleaner. Uh, a lot brighter, and it needed to be brighter. And and conceptually, what I think uh, about about uh, <laughs> about Chaikin as a an artist, uh, he doesn't live up to that level as a writer. <laughs> no, he's, he's you know, I mean, this this story is just so chock full of silliness, and not not in a silver agey fun way either. No, it's it's actually a fairly dark story. And it's well, it's a western. It's a, it's a dark frontier land western type thing. It's just it's just uh, got fancy costumes in it, and they're really there's nothing other than the Falcon that separates this thing from just a western. Yeah, and, I mean, well, he, the has, costumes. he even has to ride a horse to get the guy. Yeah, yep, yep. He rides out on a horse to get the guy in the snow. You're absolutely right. No, I I, I, was, I was reading this thing and I was going, yeah, this this is standard shake, and this is uh, you know, it can be prehistoric past, it can be super future, it doesn't really matter. It's all about the same. Mm. He's even got spurs, by the way. I don't know if you noticed that on the cover. He's got spurs oh, yeah. on his boots. Oh, they all do. I hear they jingle, jingle, jingle. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm not real pleased with the actual book. Maybe I should have just not read it, and it could have existed <laughs> in my mind as a wonderful thing. Um, but you yeah, might have been able to pronounce it, too. <laughs> I might have been. I don't know what's up with that. Monarch Starstalker. Say it 30 times fast. No. Uh, <laughs> I, I do want to point out that I, one thing I do love about Chaikin is it doesn't matter where his story set. There's always someone wearing fishnets, like in page six. That's true. At the restaurant, you're talking about the restaurant scene. Yes, with the waitress. Mm-hmm. Wait, was there any fishnet in Star Wars? Oh, I'm thing. sure. Look, if Darth Vader's drinking I a cup of coffee, I think one of them chicks in the cantina had fishnets. If I'm, I'm not sure mistaken. there's, I, you know what? Right. I've actually, I've actually got the series right here in my hot little hands. Let me see if I can oh, locate some. Even better, I've got volume one and two of the omnibus hardcovers right here. So let's see. Obi Wan Kenobi's wearing fishnets in issue two. There it is. <laughs> it's almost that's almost as disturbing as three PO's nipples. <laughs> that's no, that's Infantino. Oh, that's that's, that's, that's Carmine Infantino. You know what the sad thing is? Is I'm looking here at the Wikipedia entry for Monarch Star Starstock. Man, you really can't say that, can you? <laughs> And apparently he came back for a couple of issues of Nova Volume 4. Now, I hold that series in incredibly high regard. I consider it a, a fantastic series. I will be goddamned if I remember this guy being in that at all. That's that's the one that, that came out of Annihilation? Yeah, because it says here that... Uh, 
It talks about this long-lost Nova Corps starship, the Resolute Duty, suddenly reappearing, carrying a Nova Centurion, blah, blah, blah. I remember everything it's talking about, but I don't remember this Starstalker dude being part of that story at all. So, wow, yeah. I, I don't know what that's all about. And according to this, is his, I don't know, you know, again, I, I take Wikipedia with a grain of salt, but according to this, his complete bibliography consists of this issue, uh, Nova Volume 4, issues 29 and 30, and then Wolverine, The Best There Is, issues 7 through 12 in 2011. And that's pretty much it. That's so, a weird run. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it really is. Who's feeding back? It sounds like jingle bells to me. Sounds like crickets. Sounds, it sounds like crickets. I'm pretty Somebody sure it's a back loop. Oh, it went away. <laughs> Jeff again. He's Bluetoothing everywhere. Yep. Man, he's, first he's in the refrigerator, then he's outside. He's just he's just got wanderlust tonight. I wish he had dinner for geeks lust. It would be nice to see him. <laughs> Podcast. Hell, the other week it was Ron and me. Has that issue? Has that episode come out? No, not yet. Okay, it comes out this week then, and because I'm already, yeah. I'm like, yeah, I'm like we, two we, weeks ahead. We, huh? we did a, we did a dinner for geeks for just you and me, so yep. we decided to put it out with you and Scott. No, no, no. I found that one. I know you found that and one. You don't understand. You don't understand. I'm working very far ahead right now because I'm trying to be very far ahead. I'm actually the next two episodes are already uploaded, ready to go. They're going to be released on time trigger. Oh, uh, yeah, I've never so, done that. Uh, I did it because I wanted to get ahead and work on my Star Wars story some more. So, and I now, had the opportunity to, so I did. I'm going to ask this question. I know this is completely pointless and inane, but uh, on the last page, uh, he's standing over looking at the uh, cemetery. Yes. It's a frozen planet. Yes. Kind of well, hard used, to. to well, it used to not be a frozen planet. Please remember. Yes, they said they well they were terraforming and they ran out of like uh, money. Well, yeah, they they had the they had these uh, yeah these terraformer type things that I guess just kind of ran consistently and kept it in good shape, and then they shut down, and so everything became wintry all the time. Uh, but I mean, you can you can dig a hole in cold ground. It's a little harder. It's yeah. hard. Trust me. Sure. Well, sorry, forgot you were born and raised in the think, south. Uh, I've been in Alaska. I understand digging in and. You go down a couple of feet, you hit permafrost. Well, that's it's right. They don't. Good. They don't dig them in Alaska. I forgot. They just put them in hot air balloons when they die. <laughs> <laughs> I think in the like in the late eighteen hundreds, though, during the winter, I think they would actually uh, they would just like kind of crate up the corpses and wait until it wait till the ground stack them up like cordwood. Hmm? Yeah, very much. Yeah, I read, one of my one of my favorite, and I don't know how historically accurate it is, but one of my favorite uh, Western. Uh, well, miniseries really isn't a movie. Uh, is Lonesome Dove, and mm-hmm. there is there is a part, a character who dies in that, and and basically they say we're gonna have to wait until the uh, the spring to bury him. Nice. Yeah. So uh, we lost uh, Jeff. Oh, did we? Jeff's gone. Jeff is no, he's a stiff, bereft of life. <laughs> he's a pining for the fjords. Oh, I see. Okay, he's got to he's got to take care of his daughter real quick, and then he's gonna be back. So. Hey, uh, I have a, a question about the plot. I don't know if anyone else notices in the story itself. There was a plot. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> there was an outline of a plot, I think. Oh. Um, but okay, so uh, uh, Monarch is hired to. Wait, wait, kill... no, you got to say his full. If we've got to say his full name, you got to say his full name. I don't know his full name. <laughs> 
Monarch, Monarch Starstalker. Starstalker. Monarch J Starstalker. He owns a mansion on the yacht. <laughs> but did not have his monocle in for this episode. I don't know what that's all about. Although on the you cover, know, on the cover, he looks like Randolph Mantooth. Does he not? I don't know who Randolph Mantooth. If that's you not know, Randolph Mantooth, I don't know who is. I, I meet a lot of people in my job from all over the world. I have yet to meet anybody named Monarch. I'm just saying. <laughs> because you haven't met anybody from space, Scott Gardner. You don't know that. <laughs> if I was an alien coming to Earth, Disney World is where I would go. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, no, no, get get this. Okay, so Monarch is hired to kill Kurt. Kurt was hired to kill the, the, guy, the ambassador to the planet. From the corporation. From the corporation. Yeah. So who, who, do you think the corporation hired Monarch so they could cover their own trail? Hmm. And do you think Monarch takes it personally? No, I don't think Monarch takes it personally. I think Monarch takes nothing personally. He loves and leaves. <laughs> He's not really that well-developed of a character now, is he? <laughs> do we start getting the subtext and all of that? Well, so, you see. So he's not a Spencer for hire who will, will not stop until he unravels every part of the mystery. Oh, now, come on. Why are you throwing Spencer in my face? Because you read every day. I love Spencer. <laughs> no, yes, I think uh, more of a Randolph Mantooth type. Maybe Emergency, something like that. Scott, in Marvel Star Wars, what was the name of the of the character that Lando dressed up as that one time that was a nod to some manga character? Oh, Captain... Uh, Captain... Was it Drebble? <laughs> Captain Obvious. Um, <laughs> was it Drebble? Uh, Drebble was his alias, cause there, but there was a Captain Drebble. Right. The, yeah, because he, yeah, he dressed up as Captain Harlock. That's who it was. Har- yeah, Harlock. That was it. But he didn't call Did- him... Uh, he called himself Drebble, though, yeah. Yeah. Because this reminds me of some strange amalgam of that and that really shitty issue where Han went to another dimension and was riding horses and fighting for that princess and all that. It, it's it's really it's kind of strange. I'm not sure what uh, what Chaken was going for here. I'm trying to remember the issue where he went to another dimension and was riding horses. How do I? It, it's that one that on the cover it it says something like. Han is outnumbered three to one. Boy, are they in trouble or something, oh, yeah. something like that. And it's got a Sinkovic uh, uh, cover where he's where Han's on a horse. <laughs> yeah. Sinkovic? Han what? on a horse. <laughs> that sounds like something you'd have at a local barbecue, Han on a horse. <laughs> <laughs> it, sounds like a, it sounds like a link on Monty Python. And now, Han on a horse. <laughs> That's enough of that silliness. You know, the thing that I can't believe none of us have talked about yet is not so much even the issue or the R or anything like that. It's this nightmarish image that is going to keep me awake tonight that's on the mail page of the... (laughs) What the hell is that thing? Flatman? Is that what that is? No, Flatman is from the uh, Great Lakes Avengers. Great Lakes Avengers. This this was from the, the Liberty Legion. Um... Yeah, that's it's wrong. Like looking. Thin Man or something along those lines. Oh, it's yeah, that's very just not right. Yeah, very vision. That's what I thought it was at first. I thought it was the vision, like put through like one of those those ringers that my grandmother used to have on her washing machine or something. I, I don't know what the hell's going on in this panel, but it's freaking me out. I got to change the page. You know, <laughs> and when Scott said he had a story for this, I went through and read the, the letters page because I thought maybe he had written one of these letters. 
Yeah. <laughs> yes, he he is he is called the Thin Man. The Thin Man. Okay. There was a whole bunch of movies about him. Yeah, he's got a dog too somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> he's he's very popular in the crossword puzzles. Yeah, I was gonna say if there's a crossword puzzle out there, by God, he's in it. Wow. <laughs> now I you know. Uh, Letter grade for this thing? How, I forget. What what various letter grades do we do? Story, we do, art, and we cover? We do cover, story, art, and then overall. I don't think the cover's bad. I'm going to give it a No. B. I think the cover's interesting. It's 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 got some Star Wars to it. It's got a lot of adventure. Who uh, is got, the cover? Because that, that's Chaken. not just Chaken, is it? It does look like he may have had a little inking assistance. Yeah, it does look that way. Did, did anybody look this one up? I can look it up real no. quick. Keep going. Vamp. Um, Vamp, boy. Interior art. I've got to give a C minus to the art, and and mostly because it is just so dark that it's. I mean, comic books are supposed to be bright. You're supposed to be able to see them, and and if they're dark, there's got to should be a reason, a storytelling reason, and there's not really. It's just dark. Uh, it's just like he poured ink all over the place. So I got a C minus on the art, and on the story, I also have a C minus because it's readable, and fortunately, it's in those days when Marvel was trying to do 17 page comics. Because I don't know if I could have made it through a 22 or 23 page Monarch Starstalker story. So C minus for that, C minus for that, B on the cover. Overall, I'd say a C minus. Okay, I'm, I'm going to jump in next. Uh, I'm going to say a B minus on the cover. It's eye catching. I think the biggest thing that's, that is eye catching is the color palette on it. Uh, the combination of kind of that mauve background with the star field in it, with the giant gold phoenix thing or falcon or whatever the hell it is and then the purple cape and then you have the white contrast or the kind of off-white contrast and then the chick with big boobs down at the bottom <laughs> so you know overall it is eye-catching but some of the things about it some like his just kind of the pose that monarch monarch star stalker is standing in <laughs> uh and just his anatomy there just kind of looks a little off to me just the same uh so I'm going to say a B minus. It's eye catching, but it's I still don't look at it as being good. <laughs> well, do yourself a favor. Pay attention to the the woman's got her arms wrapped around his leg, but look at the physics behind her wrapping her arm around his leg that way. It's <laughs> She's very got a dislocated unnatural. shoulder. Give her a break. Yeah, it's what it looks like. That's the way he likes women. Dislocated shoulder, and she can unhinge her jaw. And, <laughs> and he's he's about to uh, to slice up her leg with his uh, spur. Spur, yeah. His spur. And then what? What has she got? Some kind of like intergalactic garters going on her legs there. Yeah, you know. But it, you know, it, it, it is. I, I don't think it's necessarily good art, but it's eye catching. So I'm going to yeah. say B minus on it. The interior art, uh, again, I'm going to give it some points for storytelling because I do think it flows well. But as far as the individual renderings, I think they're bad. Uh, I agree with you. It's too dark, and then. There's areas where it lacks definition. If it, it, it's either too dark or there's nothing, um, I, I really don't like it at all. If again, maybe if you had a strong anchor come in and, and you know really impose his will on on the actual individual pictures, uh, it, it might have made a, a much more easily read book. Mm. But as it is, this this is it, it, it. I almost had to fight to keep reading it because I didn't like the art. Uh, so I'm gonna say I'm gonna go with you on C minus on the art. Uh, Story-wise, I just kind of think there's a lot of just kind of dopiness to it, uh, and and just some some kind of just stereotypical, you know, space space slash western tropes uh, that don't really do anything for me. So I'm going to say a D on the uh, story, and overall, I'm going to give the book a, a C minus. On that, we agree. 
Okay, my turn. Yeah. Uh, on the cover, uh, I I give it a, a, a C plus. I, it's okay. It's uh, it's sort of standard uh, Marvel hero fair type thing. Just put a hero on the front, you know, and hopefully everyone will open it up and find out what's going on. Um, the art itself, I'm again. I'm, I like Shaken. This is this is you know this is not much different than his stuff he was doing at Atlas Seaboard. Um, I will and, point out this is Shaken, not stirred. So, yes. <laughs> how long have you waited to use that? that awful. <laughs> oh, that's it. The show's over. <laughs> but yes, the 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 coloring does make it very muddy, um, and of course that's uh, uh, Miss Wayne Wayne. How you pronounce that? Guidance. Uh Wayne is it's uh, it's Glennis Wayne. Yeah, yeah. It was Lynn's wife I, at the time, I guess. Yeah, yes. I would assume that. Uh, but we've had complaints about her in the past on this show and her coloring. Well, I certainly hope that that has affected her annual performance review. <laughs> I hope so too. <laughs> had a number of complaints about I, I, your work, I Glennis. Think, I think she's had enough complaints that she go. changed her name. Um, <laughs> well, she was Glennis Oliver later, wasn't she? Yeah, she was. Uh, the once in future Glennis Oliver. Yes. Anyway, um, she goes story. by Bruce now. <laughs> Give her a bravery medal. <laughs> um, the, the story is so standard, and it's a Western. It could have been done as a straight-up Western. It could have been done as a jungle tale. It didn't matter. It really didn't. Mm. Um, it, was, it, was a, it, was a, it was a passable story. Um, I'll give it a C. Uh, the, I, I like the art, but, you know, you yeah, it's like it. Give it a grade. Give it the grade you want to give it. Don't. I, worry about I, I, it, it, it's C plus. It's better. It's better than some of the stuff I've seen. But yeah, the the uh, coloring does uh, hinder it a lot. Um, so yeah, I think that's about it. It's it's about a C C plus. I think oh, that, right. should, that that should have been like plastered across the cover. And by her review, it's better than other stuff I've seen. <laughs> Now, when you, just, you, say the, you say the color hinder, and the color you're referring to, of course, is black. Black, yeah. <laughs> which, which is technically the lack of color. <laughs> yeah. But but what does give this uh, the 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 uh, my A plus is on the uh, bullpen page, where uh, they describe uh, describe uh, the Marvel premiere, which features wholesome Howie Chaken. Um, <laughs> wholesome. Wholesome. Hardly. Yep. Yeah, I yeah. I like Howard Chicken, but he's not family fair. Yeah, if you like this, kids, check out the Black Kiss. <laughs> <laughs> I do think Chicken's art is much better suited to like a film noir type story. Yeah, than it is to a western or a uh, a, a space story. I still find this an interesting comic because it is it's the October seventy six issue. He is. On the verge of putting out Star Wars when this comes out. I mean, this yeah, is this is, this is five this is, projects from Star Wars number one. Yeah, he's he's on the verge of doing Star Wars number one. So that, for that, to me, it's a, it's a bit of a historical document. Of course, also Archie Goodwin was the editor, and that again speaks to me. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, it's 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 not a good. This, you know, it'd be interesting if this was what got him the Star Wars book. <laughs> Wouldn't surprise me because they look, they look at this and go, "This is exactly what we want Star Wars to look like." Dark, it, dirty, used. Well, was that what Star Wars really was? Yeah. Supposedly, yeah. Paul, wasn't it you that brought um, Marvel Spotlight 31, the Nick Fury assignment, the Infinity Formula story yes. to the table yes. at one point? That's Quite two projects before this. Quite some time ago, and I like that story. And again, yeah. that, that fits more of the film noir yeah. 
mold, although I can't say I love the artwork in it. It's, you know, Chaikin style just is not my style of choice. It, it's, right. it's given. And, and you know, while we're talking, I, I went back and I was looking at the uh, Marvel Star Wars issue, too, where he's inked by Leia Aloha. And, and I do agree with you. Uh, and, they, you know, now you have a strong inker. So right, exactly. You, you know, you have somebody who's going to impose his will on the individual drawings, but allow the layouts that, that Chaikin do, do, Chaikin do, that Chaikin <laughs> did uh, to to you know control Literally. the rhythm of the story, and and it, and with that kind of combo, it's great. But yeah. with with a weak anchor or with a, an anchor who's just gonna kind of play with what Chaikin does, it doesn't work for me. Fair look, enough. And, and and look, anchors as and I think Scott Gardner backs me up on this. And I think probably uh, Spataro backs me up on this. And maybe Ron, anchors are artists themselves. Oh yeah, uh, you know t- people. Uh, oftentimes, people will kind of kind of uh, put down an inker as a guy who traces, but they're not, they're really not. They're artists in and of themselves, and they can have a profound Good impact ones. on the look Good of the work. Well, and what I was going to say is, Chaikin has to understand he's a penciler; he's not an inker. Right. Well, I I find that for me, two guys that I will I will lump very heavily into the same category is Chaikin and Giffen, because both of them I like their early stuff a lot. But over time, it's it's something changed, and it just they're they're ink they they almost exclusively ink themselves, and their inking style is very much like the interior of this book. Everything's really blocky. Everything's very dark, very thick lines, and it is. It, it's like watching a, an older movie that's just not lit properly, and that's what it reminds me of with a lot of their stuff. And there there are instances in some of the art where I literally don't know what the hell I'm looking at. Mm-hmm. This page here, page 14, that last panel at when, uh, when it looks like Monarch and his squeeze are getting it on there, that very last panel. Can anybody tell me what the hell I'm looking at right there? Yes, I have no yes. idea what that is. The Falcon is sitting on a piece of furniture, looking at them embracing, but it took a long time to figure that out. And the furniture looks like it's made out of eyeballs. <laughs> Wow! Yeah, see, I'm not getting that at all. <laughs> and, and I'm going to tell you, I think I think Chaikin actually went down to like the Glidden Paint Store and got a number seventy-eight brush, <laughs> and that's how he inked this thing. That panel above, you know, the the second panel down, discounting the little inset panel of her saying, uh, uh, "You're rather long-winded." That second panel down, it looks like a horrible kayaking accident right there. What what the <laughs> hell is going on there? So, yeah, I, I, yeah. I don't know. That is bizarre. But uh, I love the cover on this. I, I honestly do. The, the cover to me is, uh, you know, it seems strange to say this because it's before Star Wars, but it's strangely reminiscent of Star Wars. Yep. Which, oh, yeah. It's, you know, I almost wonder if that's the point of it, but then that begs the question of, you know where where was Star Wars in this timeline for him? Had he actually seen any material, begun his work, or anything like that? And I kind of doubt it, mm-hmm. only because this book's release date is December '76, and Star Wars uh, release date, you know, the comic I'm talking about is uh, is July of '77. So I don't know. I mean, would he have been privy to Star Wars that far ahead of time? And I kind of doubt it because that's just not how comics worked back then so it's somehow it just becomes more like strangely prescient as opposed to you know well now he got the assignment he did get the assignment for marvel in 76 
oh, well, maybe it does owe more to Star Wars than I don't know. But it, you know, the cover to me is is very Star Wars for a number of reasons. You know, you've got the the very Leia like pose at the bottom with you know the girl mm-hmm. holding his leg and all that. Um, I found Monarch himself to be quite Han Solo like in a lot of ways, but. You know, there, I mean, there's, there's just as much to, to dislike on the cover as there is to love on the cover because his outfit's just flat silly. Mm-hmm. And you could make the most entertaining GIF file out of this cover if you could alternate his belt from the position it's in to being perfectly straight, you know, level, and then back to the way it is now. It would look like he's constantly, like, thrusting his hips at you. <laughs> well, that's, that's actually how Chicken thought it should look. <laughs> well, that is very much how it looks um on the interior yeah you know it's hard to defend this because i really do like chaken but yeah i'm not crazy about this between the the color palette that they chose and the just crazy heavy inking you know the black use of black um yeah i'm just not i'm not terribly enamored of the interior art so the cover i would give a straight up b the interior art i would say I don't know. I'd probably have to go a little harsh. I'd have to probably say like a C minus because looking at the face shot of Monarch on page 30 next to last panel and then you flip the page and the next to last panel of him, that's two completely different people. He looks very girlish in the one and he looks like uh, George Lazenby or something on that on that last page. It's just, yeah, very different. Uh, for what's supposed to be the same character. And he, and he changes constantly. Second to last panel in the book, he looks like Pernell Roberts. Who is that? Uh, Trapper John? He, Trapper John, but before he was Trapper yes. John, when he was on Bonanza. Bonanza, right. yeah. He's a Western reference. <laughs> Sorry. But yeah, I mean, constantly throughout the book, he changes, though, because there's there's some panels where I think he looks like the Shadow. There's other panels where he looks like an American Indian. And so, yeah, it, it's... It's not consistent at all with his look, so I don't know. And as far as the story goes, I, I have to confess, I did not read this. I haven't read it yet, so I'm going strictly off Scott's synopsis, but it sounds wacky as hell. Um, but I don't know if it's fair to really give it a letter grade, seeing as how I didn't actually read the uh, the issue itself. I'm calling bullshit on you there. Because you, you said I have not read it yet. That implies that you plan on reading it, and I don't. I probably <laughs> will at some point, just because you know I, oh, I'd, I'd like to check it out. No, I would. I I'd, I'd, I would like to check it out because I'm I'm interested in you know kind of I, I look at this as kind of a forerunner of Star Wars in some ways. You know, because that's, this is yeah. That's yeah. why it was of note to me. Now I will also say Scott probably will read it. I agree with him because not only is he interested in Star Wars and it's kind of a forerunner, but you remember he is a big uh, Titanic buff, so he's interested in gigantic natural disasters. And <laughs> seems to fall in line with that. <laughs> but yeah, that's about all I got. Oh, I, I did have one other thing. I looked up the cover. Now, according to Mike's Amazing World, the sole credit on the cover is Howard Chaikin. With all apologies to my buddy Mike. Love you, buddy, but uh, yeah, I'm calling bullshit. I, that, there's somebody else involved in the inking on that cover. I just can't quite place it. The the girl's face, man, I'm, I'm struggling to think of who that, that inker is right there, but that's I don't think that's a shaken face on the girl. No, I don't think so at all. I, I agree with you. But I can't, I can't place who I think it is. But, I mean, but that's all I got. I'm trying the comic book database because I've gotten conflicting information from them sometimes from to Mike's Amazing World. Right. 
What, what is it? There it is. Let's that see. ship in the background behind uh, Monarch that's kind of shooting at his shoulder right there, that is very Infantino looking to me. The uh, comic book database also only uh, only credits Jake in with the cover. Yeah, see, I'm not. I think I think there's an ink. Either either there's a different inker or Chaikin inked it and somebody else touched it up. Yeah, or or they may have said, "Look, we'll put up with your experimental crap inside the book, but we got to sell this thing. So look, make it look mainstream on the cover." Right. That could actually be an Archie Goodwin face. Yeah, he is the editor on the book. Yep. He might have just touched up the the cover a little bit himself. Yeah, now, did you notice that the little inset image up in the corner is the exact same yeah, image? Yeah. Wow. It's the only clean drawing they've got of him. Yeah, that's true. Although it would have been nice if they'd had her arm hooked around him in the image. I guess this is too early for the time when uh, when Byrne was doing all those inset images up there, but I would have loved to have seen Byrne's take on, uh, on this character. Mm-hmm. What did you think of his outfit? Who? Any anybody? 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 <laughs> I thought. I, I mean, I thought I made it clear. I thought it was kind of silly. I thought it was a very silly outfit. Yeah. It's purple. It's blue, and it's, it's a, gold. And it's a cape. But it's like a yellow gold, and it's a cape with a fur lining. Well, you know, like a fur collar. Well, it is chilly. But one he does my, again. He looks like Randolph Mantooth on the cover. One of my favorite characters is is Booster Gold, and in Booster's origin, it, it was revealed that basically he piecemealed his outfit together from the Space Museum in the future and then traveled back through time to be a superhero. Mm. I get the feeling that Monarch did much the same thing, but just had no fashion sense whatsoever. <laughs> Maybe he only had scraps left over from Booster having taken all the good stuff, you know? So he's left with like, you know, some old lady's, you know, stole cape here and, you know, Captain America's boots and you know, it's just his outfit's a mess. It's got it's got so many diverse elements to it that none of it comes together at all. Oh, you would not believe it is a disaster. <laughs> By the way, when he's in the restaurant, he's got a uh, not an ass guy. He's got a uh, what do you call it? Yes. Tied around the neck. I can't think of the word. Cravat. Cavat, yeah, it's a right. yellow cavat. He's got it tied around his neck. Like, you know? <laughs> I didn't even notice that. Oh, my God. So he takes the cape off, and he has a cavat under it. I'm a, really? Hey, wow. he's a man of intrigue. <laughs> I, I'm just wondering if that's his dinner outfit he's wearing. <laughs> <laughs> exact same thing. Neckerchief. Neckerchief. It's almost, it's, almost, it's almost Boy Scout-like. Oh, boy. All right. I don't think we're living up to this one again. <laughs> you gotta admit, when I come on this program, you I pick them. Crap. You I usually <laughs> do bring something interesting. Interesting. That's French for crap, right? Yeah, exactly. No, mailed. <laughs> well played, sir. Well played. Eh. So, time to move on to our DC. Oh, okay. It's me. I thought maybe. I hope so. Let, I, we, we, I thought maybe we let Jeff go first. Anyway, um, Jeff's not here, man. Okay, what I have tonight, dun, 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 uh, Vigilante number 47, uh, priced $1.50, dated November 1987, released August 4th, 1987, thanks to Mike's Amazing World. On the cover, as a suggested for mature readers label, uh, covers done by Todd Smith, and depicts a vigilante on a rooftop looking and pointing his revolver down while the Batman comes swinging in from above, ready to grapple him. Ready to get into the story? Oh, yeah. no, that was the story. No, that was just the cover. 
Oh, well, it was a very story, story-rific cover. Thank you. It's a very nice cover. I like it. Anyway, <laughs> uh, synopsis. Writer Paul Cooperberg, penciler Todd Smith, inker is Rick uh, Burkett, letter is Albert uh, Tobias de Gosman, colorist is Liz Bulero, Uber, Barbara, I don't know how to pronounce that, and the editor is Mike Gold, the 27-page story simply titled Batman. In the dark of night, at an abandoned warehouse on a seedy pier in Gotham City, a mysterious figure is delivered. Harry Stein, federal spook hunter for an unnamed government agency, welcomes Adrian Chase, the vigilante. Stein's man broke Chase out of prison, where he was being held for killing a cop. But they need him to track down an ex-KGB agent named Kataya, who is uh, going to smuggle top secrets out of the country. Chase is teamed up with Gotham PD detective Harvey Bullock, and they start cracking heads of local scum to find out where the whereabouts of Don, uh, Carlos, and Kataya. Meanwhile, Harry Stein goes to Gotham International Airport to meet with his boss, Val Bostock, the negative woman, who lets him know that he is now in charge of the newly reordered agency as she goes off to deal with other things. Now back to Vigilante, who has found the hotel Kataya is holed up in and is watching from a roof from across the street. Batman has followed the trail of broken bodies Chase has left behind in getting the information. He informs Chase that he's taking him in for being a murderer and an escaped felon. Then, for four pages, they fight and debate the similarities of the two characters. Uh, no, nothing Chase can say will stop the Batman. But Bullock shows up and confirms Chase's statements, and Bats is like, okay. Meanwhile, in a pointless interlude on Long Island, Paul Stapal and his lady friend are getting ready to go out for dinner. Uh, so, actually, it's Chase's ex girlfriend slash fiance who had a nervous breakdown and she's finally leaving the clinic and thank but they you are, but they but are they going are. out for a barbecue, <laughs> out for barbecue. I, you know I'm going to interrupt you there because first of all I haven't smoked a pipe in years <laughs> but I you know who I look at that picture and I think that uh, I think he's drawing Burt Reynolds well there's a mustache and on Long Island who else do I know there you go okay fair <laughs> um Anyway, um, no one has ever accused me of looking like Burt Reynolds. By the way, I'm not trying to say that. It's almost a James Garner chin, though, at the bottom of the page. Anybody else having comments about <laughs> the one-page doctor? Um, anyways, back to Gotham. On the waterfront, the old uh, Don uh, Carlos hints lecherously to Sexy Kataya about their business. Uh, he is totally oblivious that she is uh, moving secret and just using art as a front though everybody else seems to know this. Batman and Vigilante stop the transfer, subdue the thugs, and find the tape. Uh, Vigilante then takes the tape and Kataya sees it. She and the Don chase him in the limo while he's on motorcycle, and she has her men intercept him at another pier, but after they like, go on the freeway and they come back off, it seems. Um, but this has all been because he wanted to lead them there to take care of business. The Don figures out that he's been, uh, been used and because he would never knowingly betray America. Uh, Kataya guns him down, and with his last breath, he orders his men to, quote, kill the bitch, unquote. Hence why we have a mature reader's label on here. Um, Kataya's men, and then the feds, have a shootout, but Vigilante and Kataya go off to go fight by themselves, but the mobsters watch this fight, even though they have orders to kill both of them. But they wait to see who will win first. And it looks like Kataya. 
But then Batman shows up and gives a cryptic message how she can't outrun a bullet, and the mobsters open fire on her, and she falls into the water. Then they try to shoot the vigilante, and Batman pushes him off the pier. The feds show up to round up the mobsters, but Harry can't get a straight answer on if Chase is alive or dead. The end? And I think uh, in the scene, shortly after the scene where uh, Vigilante punches Kataya, uh, is that Kataya or is it Katya? Katya, Kataya, I don't know. Katia. I'm not. There's a scene where he punches her right in the face, and right after that, not many people know this, but he was dismissed from the Florida State football team right after then. <laughs> so. Well, I just like it that every time Vigilante gets in a fight, he pretty well loses in this issue. Yeah. <laughs> Even to the chick. Yeah. And yet he was hold, able to hold his own for a while against Batman. Yeah, four yeah, pages of Batman, but some girl beats him up in a page and a half. That's a fair point. Um, I had some comments about the story, the book itself. Uh, when uh, Chase meets Bullock for the first time, uh, I'm not sure, but I think uh, Harvey is eating a, a hostess fruit pie. Because it's something gooey inside, some kind of shell, and it gets all over his hands. Um I thought it was interesting. This tells you the difference between 70s and 80s comics. We have a whole interlude with uh, Val Vostok talking about leaving, but at no point by the writer or by the editor are we told that Doom Patrol will be starting the next month, and she'll be in that. And again, also with Harry uh, Stein, in less than six months, he will be the head of uh, Checkmate, which will be coming out, both written by the same writer. So there should have been like an asterisk and, and a box informing people of that? That, or in the letter page, say, hey, if you want to find out more about what Val and Harry are going to be doing, keep up with, you know, this and that. I mean, it wouldn't have been that hard. Instead of saying the agency, just say the new agency checkmate. And then people go, oh, then they see it on the stand, they know what they're looking at. No, I see. I think they should have gone with the uh, asterisk because I think. You know, you you, you want to cross-promote your books, and you want to have... I know. It, it, it helps to create that stronger, you know, universe with your characters, too. And what is what is the point of a scene like this if not to set up those other books? Exactly. Right. Well, that was the point with the two interludes, is they really had no point to them. They, they pretty much seemed like filler, but for no reason. But maybe 27 pages is a lot to write with no ads, so... Um, I, I like how... Uh, you know, Vigilante and Bullock basically have to beat up dozens of guys all around town to finally find uh, Katina or Kataya. Wait, wait, Katina? Katina? Well, now Katia? she's got an end in her name? Katia. Katia. Are you going to, like, like, every, like every you know, five minutes, you're going to add another letter to her name? Katanya. Katrina? Is that what she's going to no, be next? Not Katrina. No R. No waves. But there's no N either. I was just going to say, I didn't see any waves in this book either. No, no waves. I didn't see her walking on sunshine. I, I saw Vigilante <laughs> walking on sunshine. What's what's up with Bullock's jowls on page thirteen? Well, yeah, that I had a problem with the way Bullock was depicted in the book, totally. But or or, or on fourteen when he's climbing the ladder and he looks like he should be in Mad Magazine. <laughs> or on page uh, twenty six, I, I I looked at twenty six and I thought he looked like uh, Lothar from the Rocketeer. <laughs> Which was fitting because, you know, Don Carlos was doing his Eddie Valentine impression. Mm. He does kind of look like a, like a Harvey Kurtzman drawing on the, on the ladder. Yeah. I mean, the, the nose is gigantic. The chin is even giganticer. Giganticer? Giganticer. <laughs> How's Katrina's like maybe, chin? What's he looks like maybe he took a quick shave in between the other ones in here, though. 
And then suddenly, when you get to page 15, he's Lou Costello. <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, but yeah. Um, oh, wow. But no, but, so yeah, they have to beat up all these guys to find out where she's staying at. And of course, when Batman shows up, goes, oh, she's in that hotel. Yeah, I'm doing that for days. No one thought to ask him. But um, Well, what year was this? Uh, 87. Okay, so it's it's right around the return to dark Batman. It's right around the beginning of psychotic Batman era. So right. maybe people were just afraid to. I do like, by the way, Batman wearing his, his muscle tights in panel one of page 15. <laughs> just, they flesh-colored his arms. <laughs> they did. <laughs> it looks like Bane. Yeah. <laughs> Bane got his, his idea from this. Um so th yeah, so this is right about the start of the Batman I don't care for. You and me both, brother. This is Batman's crazy. No, but Batman, prepared Batman. for anything at any time and cannot lose to anyone ever. And of Mel course, he's the, he, he's the most moral person on the planet. But in a so, crazy kind of way. But you know, and I find that interesting that somehow he knew the mobsters were going to kill her, and then sort of just let it happen. Because he's crazy. <laughs> you just but, say that at the end of any criticism. Yeah, <laughs> but but he's he's fighting he's fighting vigilante and talking about how you know dangerous vigilante is, and that he's nothing like him. That's right. Although it's exactly like him, except better funded. Ex except that vigilante actually feels remorse that the one innocent person in forty-seven issues got killed. Yeah, and page nineteen is it? Page nineteen? Yes, page nineteen, third panel. They're mm -hmm. toasting with what is that? Pudding? <laughs> it's not champagne. It's bubbly. Uh, you know, if you put enough sugar in this stuff, it tastes just like ginger ale. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I have no idea what that's from. Uh, great bumpy <laughs> caper. Oh, okay. Fozzie's got a glass of champagne and he's dumping sugar in it like crazy. Well, that's because they went to a supper club. That's well, that's, yeah, it was more of a supper club than a restaurant, really. Yeah. yeah. The Dubonnet Club, yeah. But look, yeah. They're, they're clinking glasses, but look at the look on her face. I'm surprised exactly. the, glass, the two glasses didn't shatter. <laughs> well, I found, I found it interesting that she, she sees Vigilante and goes, no, curse him. Like, wait a minute, you know Vigilante? Yeah, she she popped up in the last issue, and but she seems to have a disdain for him, even though this would obviously be like the first time she's ever seen him. I'd be more concerned with like Batman. I'm in Gotham City. I'm trying to yeah. smuggle top secrets out of the country. I'm using the mob. I'm worried about the vigilante. Really? Yeah, I'd be worried about the bats. <laughs> I'd be worried about Batman, and it's the fact that they they chase vigilante all over to get him. But no one ever thinks like, well, you think he's in town by himself because he comes and works in Gotham a lot? No, no, he never works in Gotham. No. And then on later on page nineteen, three panels from the end of the page, Katya decides to put her tiny fist up the, the other guy's gigantic nostril. <laughs> well, that, that's not fair. She's <laughs> at the other end of the limo. It's so big. I can't tell that. There's a force. There's a force perception there. <laughs> Yeah, they never did that on Main Street. I'm just telling you. <laughs> it, it is a strange angle just to have his nostril there like that, though. How do we show depth for this? Put his nostril there, bigger than day. But she's not. She's trying to open up the uh, walkie-talkie to talk to her men. She looks like she's doing a black power gesture, actually. <laughs> 
Well, that you don't know how I would lift it. I've lifted many an antenna in my life. I've never done it with that fist. I think that would sure? rip the antenna off right there. Well, she's yeah, kind exactly. of excited. And she's got her Livestrong <laughs> bracelet on, which is good. Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to a transfer of some kind of illegal activity, wear an evening gown. Well, yeah. You've never seen James Bond. You he were never wears an evening James. gown. Huh? He never wears an evening gown. He always wears an evening gown. He, that's why he got on the cover of Vanity Fair. <laughs> oh. Bruce Jenner as James Bond? Yeah, that's right. Game Caitlin, Bond? Caitlin, um, Jane Bond. Uh, now, I do say, I actually enjoyed the, the, the story, even though it was it was quite heavy-handed. <laughs> um, but Kobelberg, uh, English, not my natural language. Um, he was born in the South and raised yeah, there. Like that ain't. Um, but, yeah, I got most of his run on Vigilante, and it, it actually I quit collecting at 43 because I thought the series was sort of repeating itself to only find out that they were going to cancel it at 50. Um, now, I, I, spoiler alert, but doesn't, like in issue 50, doesn't he bust a cap in his own head? Yeah, he does. He puts the gun in his mouth and eats the bullet. Ugh. And the, the great thing about that is, because if you had been reading Vigilante, you know that he only has one superpower, and that is he can he has the healing factor, just like Wolverine. Oh, Except so it doesn't mean anything? It doesn't mean anything until you turn the last page of the thing, and his girlfriend, Black Thorn, is they're standing around the uh, the uh, cemetery stone, and they, 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 they turn the last page, and she's holding the urn where he's been cremated. Whoa! So they made sure he wasn't coming back. Jeez. Yeah. It, it, it was it was a good way of probably one of the best actual endings to get rid of a character permanently. So they never brought him back. He has never come back. Oh come on! Vigilante has shown up, but there's been many vigilantes. Oh, but not him. But not uh, not Adrian Chase. That's almost uh, that's almost unheard of now at modern comics. Don't let Bendis hear about that. He'll bring him back. Yeah, he'll do something. Yeah, let's yeah. not give them any ideas. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I, I actually preferred uh, Cooperberg. How do you want to pronounce it? Uh, How do you? Want I guess to either Cooperberg or Cupperberg. I'm not uh, sure. Yeah, I would have gone with Cupperberg, but I've always said Cupperberg. I believe when we interviewed him on uh, on Star Trek Monthly Monday, I think I introduced him as Cupperberg, and he didn't correct us. So, so he, so you either got it right or he's polite. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, he is very polite. So, or a combination of both. Yeah, but yeah, I, I I enjoyed his writing on this series a lot more than the previous writer, which was uh, Marv Wolfman. I know some of you guys have been. Alan Marvel. Moore did some work on. Uh, he, on he did two issues. He, he did two issues. Oh, is that all he did? Just two. Yep, one story. And then did he claim that he like recreated the world Stop and that everybody it. stole from him? Stop it. Because he usually does. Stop it. Truth. What is wrong with this chick's cranium? What? It's all right. So look at page 21, second panel. Right. And then look at page 22, the four, fifth panel. She's got like crow magnon head or something. Well, what, she is what Russian. The hell is going on. Yeah, all right. <laughs> I'm not. I, I didn't realize that Russia was populated with crow magnets, but all right, that's good to know. Yeah. That's useful information, I guess. I, I, I think it's some kind of ethnic thing. I'm not sure. Speaking of page 22, what what's <laughs> happening in that second? Is he calling in an orbital strike here? Or what what the hell is that? Is that supposed to be him shooting them? Because that's not what I'm getting from this. I think he's peeing on them. <laughs> 
right, it gets bonus points for that. It just went up in my estimation. He is truly taking a piss on them because, yeah. Guy's got some stream. It's like a power washer. Well, it went right through him. That is awesome. Again, and there's another great, the the panel after he pees on them, why is Katya threatening that tiny little man? (laughs) Yeah, the forced perspective in this book doesn't really seem to to work that well. Point that gun right at his tiny little head. Well, look, I've got to point out, the writer-artist team on this is now doing Life of Archie. So. Oh, there you go. Ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> hey, Rick, Rick Burchett, believe it or not, is I, I, I rather like Rick Burchett. But, yeah, the other guy, uh, what the hell is his name? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I couldn't say. I, I think he did awesome. some Spidey in the 90s, like when Spidey was at, like, a real lull. But that's I think that's about all I've seen. But Rick Burchett, I mean, he's he's not a bad inker at all. He's just he's not teamed with anybody, you know, spectacular here. Ladies and gentlemen, as the victim in this panel, Mr. Paul Williams. <laughs> well, yeah, my other choice that I didn't choose was another Batman book. Uh, it was uh, the adaptation of the Phantom. I can't say the Mask of the Phantom. Phantasm. I, I want to say that we've done that. I could be wrong. I think you did. I know you guys did like a two-parter on the movie. I don't remember if you actually covered it. Have you guys done an episode of just movie adaptations? Single-issue movie adaptations? No, but that's not a bad idea. Because I'm I'm thinking like Superman 3. I got a lot of Dells. I have uh, have an adaptation of of Yellow Submarine that I've been itching to dive into for a long time. That that could be interesting. Uh, That could be a lot of fun. fun. Yeah, something to think about. That was gold key. Nice. Anyways, that's uh, pretty much all I have to say about this, uh, except that if there was no ads in this. Uh, There's just promos from DC, uh, and the, the promos consisted of Millennium Checklist, World of Krypton, Underworld, Doc Savage, and Wasteland. Hmm. And I, that was probably why I quit collecting comics. I'm, I'm paging <laughs> through this as, as we're talking. Look at the middle panel on page 18. It's Fat Man. <laughs> 18. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Cool. He's... Batman in that one. He looks like he's taking a dump. He's there wearing he huskies. <laughs> his, cape, his cape is like in a very, very strange position. Yeah. I don't understand the cape at all. His I cape think the cape, the, the cape, he's trying to take some dramatic license there, but yes. done poorly, I think. Yes. Well, the next Why are all the mobsters wearing purple? Because that's the game color. Yeah. Uh, They're flying their colors. You're one of us. You'll wear purple. That's yeah. right. <laughs> Mark was a gangster. Um, but he, he's Batman's definitely looking chubby in that one. Yeah, well, in, the next, in the next picture, Batman's not got a shirt on at all. Again, <laughs> Batman keeps chucking those sleeves. Well, it's shirts versus skins. Oh, gotcha. That's you know that's what happens when you have a colors I've never heard of before. So obviously, a colors that didn't get a lot of gigs after this. It wasn't it wasn't Glynis Ween? Nope. Unless she's working on another pseudonym. Liz, Liz Barube. Yeah. Maybe she's, is that a Russian name? Does she have the big head? I don't know. <laughs> I have to look her up on, uh, on the internet. Um, Liz Barube. Anyways, uh, Todd Smith cover. Unless anyone has something else they want to criticize. Cause I, I, you guys have been going for a while now. Nope, I'm done. <laughs> okay. I like the cover. I think it's a great cover. Um, though the rope is a little wonky. As is Vigilante's right hand. No, he's holding on to the ladder. I can see that. It's he's lo- sort of leaning over. It's he's turned over. at a strange angle to the elbow. 
Yeah. So is Batman's the way Batman's holding the rope too? I think that would break your wrist if you tried to do that. <laughs> Unless you had special bat strength. That's, that's not, right. <laughs> that's not ergonomic, right there. He's he's gonna get carpal yeah. tunnel doing that shit. <laughs> and his glove. It looks like his gloves are not pulled all the way on either. They look kind of wrinkly, like like he's got them yeah. half on, like they're supposed to go well, all the way up to well, his shoulders. That, that makes for it e- easier to take off his shirt for certain shots. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but it's not my favorite Vigilante cover. Uh, I liked it back when they just did the Vigilante covers where they were playing with the uh, the image of uh, the blue and the black and the, and the red mask. And those are always great. But, yeah, it, it actually happens in the story. So, hey, and it's eye-catching. Batman's about to pounce on him. So I'll give the cover a solid uh, B+. Uh, the interior art, um, Todd went on to uh, draw... Uh, checkmate with uh, Paul later on, uh, and it's more of the same. I think it's sort of fairly standard. Uh, sort of, you can follow it. There's a couple places that you're trying to wonder who's actually saying things. You know, but I think overall the arts, uh, I'll give it a, a solid uh, C+. And uh, the story, except for the interludes, which made no sense at all, uh, since they didn't actually go anywhere, uh, I thought the story was a solid B, and so I'll go. I'll go. I say it's a good solid uh, uh, B minus. Um, I like the cover. I think it's eye catching. Uh, sometimes the stand that I go by is if I were just in the store looking for a book to pick up, you know, would this one catch my eye and and get me to pick it up? And I think it would. Uh, and I, and I hate that. I hate to be so so. Uh, so easily used that you throw Batman jumping on somebody on there, and yeah, I'll buy it. Because uh, I feel like they've they've gone with that. They've gone to that well way too often. But I still think I probably would have on this one. Uh, I do do see what you're both talking about about the respective hands of our two heroes and how they're not quite right. But I think it's a kind of a cool angle that we're looking up at, and it's dynamic. It's exciting. Uh, I think it's a solid B. The interior art I cannot speak so kindly of. It's inconsistent. There's a few shots that I think are pretty good, but there's a lot more that I think are bad. It reminds me of, you know, it's a couple of years early on it, but it reminds me of the 90s where they were just having so many people draw books and just, Mm -hmm. you know, the artwork just seemed to have no weight to it at all. It just, you know, just seemed to be thrown on the paper a little bit. Uh, I'm going to say C- on the interior art. I'm not happy with it at all. Uh, the story, I think, is pretty decent. It's a decent read. It's got, you know, kind of some some cool elements to it. And I'm going to say a B minus on that, and overall a B minus for the book. Hmm. Nice. Um, I I I do like the cover, despite some of the goofiness. I mean, there's also some goofiness as far as where he is with relationship to all the other buildings and that ladder that's right there in his hand. You know, none of it makes any sense when you actually pay attention to it, but it is striking. What I find interesting is Todd Smith drew the cover by himself, as I as I understand it. Right. There's no he inked his own work, and to me, it looks a hundred times better than the art inside the book, where somebody else inked his work. So I think again, we've got a great case here where two consecutive books, some decent pencils, were probably ruined by some bad inking. You know, and I and I don't have to point anywhere past page one of the story, where uh, panel four, where you see. Uh, our character in the shadows 
They've totally blacked out all of his face except the bridge of his nose and his gigantic flashing blonde eyebrows. <laughs> and that's just weird looking. Um, it's just there's just a lot of over inking in this book inside. I'll give the cover a B. Um, I give the interior. I think I gave Monarch Starstock a <laughs> <laughs> Monarch Monarch Starstalker. Starstalker a. I gave it a C minus on the interior. I think this is a hair better than Monarch Starstalker. No. And yes, because no. it's this is brighter, cleaner. It is. It's too dark, but it's not as dark as the Monarch Starstalker art. I'm going to give it a straight up C. And the story just. It was just another. It, it's not like this story couldn't have been told in a hundred other books with a hundred other different characters with absolutely no difference in the in the entire story flow, with the exception of the interludes, which I thought were crucial to the uh, issue. Um, and uh, you know, to me, that's a C minus there. So I think overall, I'm I'm looking at another C minus because I weigh, I think I weigh story a little heavier. Hmm. My turn. Yeah. Yep. All right. Well. The cover, at first glance, I think the cover is pretty dynamic. It's when you take time to actually pay attention to it and really examine it is where it starts to kind of fall apart and you start to notice all the wonkiness and the inconsistencies. I think the positions of the of the two wrists in question just need to be switched because Batman needs to be gripping his rope the way Vigilante is gripping the ladder and vice versa. But the way it's laid out, it just looks kind of kind of awkward and, and weird. Batman has a weird kind of like smushed nose look to him there too, which you know, it just looks funny. It looks like he's broken his nose at some point and he's got it bandaged up or something. It just looks kind of weird. But I mean, it, it's not a bad cover. Um, I'd probably say I'd probably say a straight up B. I mean, it, it's got potential. And I mean, you know, if, if your if your goal is to just sell the book, this would probably do the job because I'm pretty sure. This is the first meeting between these characters, which was something that was clamored for for a long time, was for Batman to run up against the vigilante. And I'm pretty sure that this is where this actually happens for the first time. Yeah, I'd say all 17 regular readers of that book were clamoring for this. Right, so. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, that led leads directly into my biggest criticism of the book is that... You know, that would be the only reason for me to pick this up because I make no bones about the facts. I call Vigilante shitty Punisher because that's what he is. He's shitty Punisher. Um, Mike Bailey and I reviewed an issue of Vigilante a while back because as part of uh, Tales of the JSA's crisis coverage, there was an issue that came up that had a pre-crisis monitor appearance in it except it didn't it's actually on the list by accident in my opinion because the, <laughs> the monitor is actually not in the friggin book but the hallmark of the vigilante is so far as i can tell is that he just gets his ass kicked repeatedly he's he's completely ineffectual and it, if he does manage to accomplish his goals in the story it's almost like dumb luck and happenstance it's not because he's he's good at what he does like the punisher and this issue is is the same thing as that other issue I read, where it's just it's him constantly getting his ass handed to him. You know, first it's Batman, and then it's you know the the Russian lady later on in the story. And I'm like, what what the hell? This guy just can't seem to catch a break. Uh, I did think it was interesting when I realized that the mummy lady was actually negative woman from the Doom Patrol. I didn't realize that at first. That's actually kind of interesting. Um, but my biggest 
problem with this beyond the fact of, you know, after all this buildup, Batman and Vigilante finally meet and it's really not that interesting or exciting. And then they end up team. You know, they have a friggin' team up that that just it wouldn't happen. These two are, are diametrically opposed to each other. And th- this just I don't care about Bullock running in and oh, Batman, stop. You know, he's actually an art. No. That I don't. I just didn't buy the premise of that part of the story at all. These these two would end up fighting each other. So there was that. The art is just shit in this. I mean, it's it's so horribly inconsistent. And I suddenly realized something is that the reason Batman is inconsistent is that every single panel is. I hate to say a swipe. I, I'm going to believe that the artists were trying to homage different artists, but it's it would be pretty easy to think that they might've been trying to swipe other artists too, because that very first panel of, of Batman where he's perched on the ledge and, uh, and he's going vigilante and vigilante he's going, huh? The Batman that swiped right out of a, an issue of um, detective comics. One of those, I don't know, it's like a hundred page or 80 page giants or something like that. And it was the, the, um, like the index page, you know, telling you what, what's going to be in the book. I've seen that pose before. I can't remember who the artist is on it, but I've seen that exact, you know, image of Batman somewhere else. The one just below that on page eight, that's Frank Miller's dark Knight Batman. And then you turn the page, you've got a Paro's Batman, you've got, I don't know which one this would be here, the next one where he's belting Vigilante in the face. And it's like each Batman you look at in this is a different artist's rendition of Batman. The one at the bottom of page 11 is Irv Norvik. And it just carries on like that throughout the entire book. The one at the bottom of the page uh, on 12, the second to last panel, that's like Super Friends Batman. And so it just lends a really wonky look to the entire book. Um, which one, whichever one of you guys said that uh, Bullock looks like he's straight out of Mag- Mad Magazine totally called it because he really does. He's so cartoony that it just it further degrades the overall look of the art in the book as a whole because he doesn't fit with the world. You know what I mean? It, it's it, it reminds me of when. DC had that crossover where it was uh, the Justice League of America met up with Bugs Bunny and his pals, you know, because it was like they were trying to do the Roger Rabbit type of thing and, you know, have these these real, you know, supposedly real characters interacting with cartoon characters. That's what it looks like here. You've got Batman and Vigilante and all these real, you know, quote unquote, real people. And then Bullock looks like he's out of a cartoon. It's just, it's really weird and inconsistent. You've got a Carmine Infantino Batman at the top of page 15, and it just carries on and on. I just couldn't help but notice that Batman is just, he's complete. He's done. He's, it's like an homage to a completely different artist in almost every panel in the book. It's just really strange. The chase scenes are just bizarre. The, the speed lines and the different, uh, way things are inked the colors don't help at all because it's very muddy and uh yeah you know i mean the story is interesting and i like Cumberberg as a writer so i'm not really faulting him other than the fact i just don't find that there's a lot of payoff to batman and vigilante finally you know meeting up with each other so i mean the story i'd give a i don't know a c it's it's average it's okay i i just i don't care for this character 
but the biggest thing that hurts it is the art. I'm giving the art a straight flat F. I think it's horrible. Oh. I, I think it's really, really bad. I just I don't find a single shot or panel or anything in this where I go, hey, that's actually pretty good. Not a one. I think they're all really, really rough. The the one you know of of Batman confronting the vigilante has great potential. And at first glance, you're like, hey, that actually looks pretty good. But then when you realize that it's swiped from somewhere else, it just it loses all the effect to me. And and that just kind of ruined it. Plus, he's got like super tiny bat on his on his chest, too. It just looks weird. But yeah, that's all I really got on this. Um, I I dug the cover. Story was eh. art was crap. All right. (laughs) <laughs> I do like learning, however, that, uh, you know, from Ron, that uh, I, I think next time I see Vigilante number 50 in a in a 50-cent bin or, or hopefully even less than 50 cents, I'm going to have to pick that up because just knowing how the character ended up, that, that makes me actually really happy because I ate the Vigilante. <laughs> uh, anyway, so Jeff never came back now, did no, he? Jeff is back. Nope, I'm back. He's back. Wow. Oh, he's going to rock star in at the end just to do his book. Look at that. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, I I figured that, you know, I'd let you all get everything out since I'm going to take five hours to review this one comic. So, Uh, Good point. Um, Good point. That's a good thing because I'm still reading it. (laughs) Have you never read it? You might beat him. I mean, I know. know, uh, We talked about this last night, Ron, that you're a a, sort of the anti-McFarlane fan. Not a big fan of his work at all. Uh, I won't say I'm anti-McFarlane, but I didn't. I didn't find anything he did interesting, but when other people came in and would do stuff, that was worth actually checking out. So I actually have a run about four or five issues where he had guest writers come in and write Spawn. So I got those. Do you have the uh, Do you have the Neil Gaiman the issue number yep. nine? Oh yeah, yeah. That's the one where where you where you met what uh, was either Delta? Tiffany or Angel. Or that was Angela the one that was subject to the lawsuit. I'm sorry. That was the one that was subject to a gigantic lawsuit. Yes, that was the one that, uh, that, that those two were, uh, that, that issue and the next one he did wound up being held out of all the different reprints and that you know, basically he was, you know, McFarlane, let's be honest, he reneged on the contract basically. Um, and it was, uh, it was ugly. Um, but, you know, it always is, especially when you've got the, you know, the might of the Marvel lawyers behind him. So that's what you know, Gaiman wound up doing on that, just to get the uh, partial rights to those characters back. Especially considering that Cog wound up being you know, a, a pretty you know, pivotal character throughout most of the first hundred issues. Um, you know, the thing it just says, you know, the strength of Gaiman's storytelling. Um, well, I mean, yeah, I've got the issues right here, and yeah, you got Alan Moore, you got Neil Gaiman, you got Dave Sims, and then you got Frank Miller. Yeah, and this one, the first one, it was story, pencils, inks, all McFarlane. Uh, Tom Marsikowski did the lettering. Steve Olive did the color. But it was, I mean, this was pretty much, you know, this was the one that I think it was IGN said that uh, that this was the most pivotal, you know, the, the the founding of Image Comics was, you know, one of the most pivotal moments in comics in the last 20 years. Um, and, you know, Spawn's still going. It's one of only two, ti- two of the original titles still going, uh, Savage Dragon being the other. Um, and I start, I started reading Spawn around issue like 38, I guess, and then caught back up, kept reading past the first, the, I think I made it like one or two before I stopped reading it. Um, but it really did. I mean, it, it, it changed the landscape and this, I mean, going back and reading the first book again, 
it changed so much in such a short period of time. The character, the story, the storytelling all evolved pretty dramatically. I completely forgot about the whole uh, power um, is a the what what did he call it? Can't remember what they wound up calling it, but basically the character Spawn was originally supposed to have a limit to how much he could use his power, or if he'd wind up dying again. So and we saw that here in the first issue. Um, so let's see, let's see how fast I can get this done. The review of Spawn number one. Um, as I said, it's pretty much all Todd McFarlane. Starts out with a shot from space. Basically, it's a monologue from Al Simmons. Still doesn't know that he is Al Simmons. It's basically his first moments when he comes back from Earth. Uh, you get a one-page splash of three different television newscasters, which basically set the all the backstory about who Al Simmons was, about his wife, um, what he did, and it, it is, it's you know basically it's a, a one page of a whole summary of what happened in Simmons's life before he wound up dying. And well, you know we get into little later in the, the thing it's, it, it all the whole issue is all just a bunch of or the first couple of pages are just flashbacks more feelings images he's trying to remember he doesn't remember anything except dying and that's you know kind of powerful you've got he remembers his wife at least what she looked like remembers making the deal with the with the with with satan with i guess it was satan i can't remember but basically with the devil uh, and then coming back to earth um, and then there on the fourth page, we've got the, the countdown timer for the first time. And you're sort of like, okay, what's that all about? The four nines. Got the big splash. First picture of a spawn. And again, you know, from you know, seeing the series, how it all wound up evolving, seeing spawn in, in that first issue, it, you know, well, it's, for one thing, it's, you know, it's not nearly as, what's the word, I guess, um, it's more symmetrical. Spawn wound up being a very asymmetrical character as things went on. And he still looks like, it at this point, still looks like a very typical superhero. Muscle-bound. You, you can see a lot of the McFarlane Spider-Man in the suit. That was one of the things that always... I don't know. I don't, wouldn't say it necessarily bugged me, but it was, it was very obvious that he took a, a hefty amount of inspiration from Spider-Man. Um, from there, we get to meet two of my favorite secondary characters from the series, Sam and Twitch, the two detectives that are yeah speaking of lawsuits yes oh yeah because of the uh, the whole tony twist thing yep yeah, he's, yeah mcfarlane had just a fair amount of controversy there even that was before the the baseball yeah mcfarlane keeps some lawyers on speed dial yeah the, 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 the same and twitch they their side title that they wound up doing i thought was even better for a while there than the main title unfortunately much like a lot of the mcfarlane series from the uh, the late 90s it was just it, it wound up being late and delayed and the whole series just sort of you know died with a whimper not with a bang it was very disappointing but you know it's that's what a lot of comic titles or at least a lot of comic titles that i wound up reading those days wound up doing um spawn gets his first taste of vigilante justice on the next pages comes across some street gangs trying to take advantage of a poor young lady out walking the dog or whatever, not doing anything, but they attack her, and then Spawn steps in, they try to attack him, and we see the first use of his powers, the first flashback, and the countdown timer winds up ticking down by five. And the whole concept originally was that once it got to zero again, he was dead again. I'm not sure exactly when that whole concept got abandoned, but seeing, again, you know, it's... Spawn finally realizes he's dead, remembers that, and then the final splash page, you've got a 
flashback to the Violator, which was one of the <coughs> ongoing enemies of the of the series. Um, you know, it's it's it sets the it sets the, the, the sets things out for the series fairly well. Um, absolutely, you know, leaves you wanting more, I would think. Um, but what I mean, what can you say about it? It was you know, a, a comic that launched a, both a you know, comic and toy dynasty um, to big areas of geekdom that you know, McFarland's fingerprints are all over. Um, I don't know. I enjoyed reading again. It's the first time I've read it since probably 2000, 2001. So it was good to see an old friend. All right. See, I can be short. Oh, did you finish? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And now everybody else is gone. I know. <laughs> so it's just you and me. Yeah. When are we going to do my Star Wars story? Huh? So when are we going to do my Star Wars story? You t- when are you going to do dinner for fucking geeks? <laughs> oh, we're still we're still doing that? <laughs> I don't know. After waiting for three months for the episode 100 to come out, I just figured that we kind of let it slide. Oh, you know. Well, you know we we've uh, you know we've been doing it because we've been doing it. Oh yeah, that's what I've been doing Without, on my Thursday nights. Yeah, except for the last. Hundred or so. Where are you? Really, just not going to make it at all tomorrow night? By the way, I, I what I will like, do as soon as 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 soon as I get done with trivia over over at the other place, I've got to come back in to record my my weekend shifts for the radio anyway. So I will swing by if y'all are still uh, at it. I got to tell you something too. I got you. I got you the best open it on dinner for geeks birthday present you could ever have. Uh, killing. That's me, all smalls. I'm telling you. Killing me, Smalls. All right. I know. All right, well, I will, I will, I'll do the countdown timer. Instead of 20 questions, they get one hour of trivia, and that's it. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. All right. Uh, so your assessment of the issue is that it's nice to be there with an old friend. Yeah. Um, I, I'm going to say I can, I can see where it kind of changed some things, you know, as, as far as you oh, know, this, how, how comics were told. The book was a game changer mostly, I think, just because of the independent nature of it and the fact that it actually sold. Um, yeah. I don't. I don't know that stylistically or layout wise. I mean, I can't credit this thing as being an innovator when you know I go to page five and I'm looking at a layout that's straight out of Dark Knight. Yeah, and that was that was one of the things I was going to talk about is that you can re, you can absolutely see a lot of the influences of Dark Knight just simply from yeah. not just you know the 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 layout and all that, but the the, the tone of the story as well. You know, yep. it's, it's, it's a subject matter and it's a feel to the story that comics just didn't have until the dark Knight. And I feel like by then Todd McFarlane had already kind of changed the game. I mean, cause it was I, like I 86 like by... was the dark Knight, and then spawn yeah. was 92. So, you know, six years. Yeah. But I mean, but I think, I think Todd McFarlane did change the game as far as layout and that kind of thing goes, but I think he'd already done it by now. Because I remember, you know, late 80s people having to catch up with him with all the panels that were kind of misplaced and the borderless panels and that kind of thing. I think he'd already yeah, made changed the industry. You saw and you saw a lot more of that as the series went on. I think this one was was a more traditional style of a comic. It's mm-hmm. a very atypical McFarlane comic. You know, you pick up at, you know, issue 50 uh, anything around that era, and it's just a, a it's that McFarlane style layout to where it's you know splash yeah. pages and, and and all over the place. And they're actually, or, I remember there were a couple of you actually that they actually had to do the old style thing of all right, here's the arrow, you start here, go to this, and then back over <laughs> to that. I so, remember John Byrne doing a couple of issues of She-Hulk where he had to directly reference the fact that he was basically having to draw like like McFarlane nowadays. Everybody had to. 
I, I wonder if, if some of this layout is based on the fact that he knew, you know, as a self-owned property that he would own all these pages when all was said and done and be able to sell them at a significant profit. Because mm-hmm. there's an awful lot of splash pages in here. Yeah, but I mean, he did that with Mar- his Marvel Star- no, Spider-Man I series as well when he had the one that he was writing and drawing. So I think just in many ways, in many ways, McFarlane strikes yeah. me as more of a businessman than an artist. And and you know, he, in in that respect, he's made himself a ton of money. So I can't criticize yeah. his uh, his business and acumen. What, I, and, I think well, that's I a little unfair. Disagree with you? I, 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 why can't you be both? Why can't you be? Well, I think he is both, but I think but I think yeah. he always had his eye on the. Uh, on the financial end of things, I don't mm-hmm. think he was ever. I don't. Most most comic book artists, I believe, get into it for a love of of the industry, and if they happen to get rich, you know, that's all nice. Uh, I don't know that that's the case with McFarlane. No, I think McFarlane's in it for the bucks, but I think he's a hell of an artist. I think he's a hell of a. I'll say a hell of a visual storyteller because I'm not in love with his writing, and this issue is not any exception for me. Um, but I do think artistically, this is kind of him at his, this is, he's in his prime. Well, I think, I think he, you know, he's bringing his A game to this. This is the first issue of, of, you know, his cell phone property. It's a masthead. You know, it's, it's the statement. This is his opening salvo. Shock, if you will. So, you know, I I do agree. I think he brought his A game to it. Uh, and, and there's some, there's some beautiful poster type images in here. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't think there's a lot going on as far as storytelling goes. In, in the in the actual artwork and you know it just kind of brings you through quickly there's there's not uh, you know i think the concept itself is kind of deep i don't think the story is deep no i agree not in the opening issue and i and i guess you know i'm more looking at it from you know someone who has had you know seen a, a huge chunk of the run and seeing where it went and realizing how much the story and the characters had evolved um I have to wonder, I mean, I'll be honest, if I had started with issue one, you know, would, would my feelings have been changed if I had picked up from the beginning instead of, you know, at the point where it was already rolling and then having to go back and get back issues and catch up to the story? Um, you know, I can't say for certain whether it would have grabbed me then or not. See, I, I have familiarity with a lot of McFarlane's Marvel work, but I yeah. really have read precious little of Spawn. So I, yeah, I was I very big on his Spider-Man, his and Michelinie's Spider-Man. His Spider-Man run and his Hulk issues, I, I was pretty much, you know, into. Uh, I didn't really get into his Infinity Inc. work. I was big on that. I'm sorry. I was big on that. I'm yeah, I mean, it's 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 fine. It's just I I he didn't he hadn't caught my eye yet at that point. I I wasn't aware of him. I think I you know I had some of the issues, but I don't think he, I don't think he fully had really you know spread his wings at that point. It was really on Spider-Man where he became a phenomena. Oh, I would argue that. I would argue that only in the sense of uh, he he came to prominence in Infinity Inc., but I think his his first real splash, the thing that got him the Spider-Man gig, was his work on the Hulk, because that that brought him to real notice and real prominence. Because the Hulk, at the time he came in, was floundering badly. And that's one of the reasons that Peter David was was given pretty much carte blanche to just do whatever he wanted with the character because I think they figured, well, you know, you, you can't do worse. And well, I, mean, between, I think that was that was true of most of the Marvel titles at that point, though, wasn't it? <laughs> that's true. Yeah, it was true for a, a lot of them. Yeah. Well, a lot a lot of the best work 
you know, best look stuff that's looked back on the, the most kindly is work where the artists were kind of given free reign because the books weren't top sellers at the time. Yep. You think about, you know, Frank Miller on Daredevil. Think about Claremont Byrne on on uh, the X-Men, mm-hmm. you know, like you say, McFarlane on the Hulk. Even to some extent, when uh, when Byrne came out to Fantastic Four, it had been kind of floundering at that point. Mm-hmm. No, no, no kind so. of to it. Yeah, yeah, very much so. But uh, no, I mean, there, there's no mistaking that you know it, it was it was Spider Man that that made McFarlane you know a, a household name and and really built his reputation. It's just uh, the only thing I was saying is that. I think it was the Hulk that that kind of brought him to you know real notice and notoriety, and then it was it was the Spider-Man stuff that really cemented that, um, you know, and and, and kind of took him from hey look at this guy to oh okay now he's the guy if you know what I mean. Um, it, it's weird looking at this because I I was a huge McFarland fan. Um, when McFarlane was an actual thing, it was one of the, you know, this this era prior, you know, just prior to Spawn, was one of the few times in my comic collecting career where I was, you know, up to speed with current stuff, and you know, it was right in that that late '80s, early '90s period. You know, I had just graduated high school, I was working my first job. You know, I was I was in the service, uh, you know, for a number of years. You know, I wasn't married and all that. And so, you know, my disposable income was going directly into comics. I was buying comics like crazy, you know, like crazy, but I was really keeping up with things. And I discovered McFarlane literally in a bus station. I was waiting to catch a bus to go visit my folks and went into this. uh, And he uh, was in the bathroom. (laughs) (laughs) No, not quite like that. It's like George Michael. (laughs) <laughs> this little newsstand that had comics, you know, on uh, on a on a spinner rack or on the wall or something like that. And the issue that caught my eye was the issue where it was Wolverine, and reflected in Wolverine's claws was the Gray Hulk charging at him. Now that was still at a time when I actively hated the X-Men and especially Wolverine. I, I, to this day, I'm not really a fan of comic book Wolverine. I just, that character just never clicked with me. So for me to look at this and go, wow, that's dynamic. That's really, and I, and I have to own that really says a lot about, you know, the, the power of his art and how dynamic and different it was at that time. So I, I bought that issue and, it just it turned out that that particular issue just through dumb luck was a great jumping on point because it kind of told you everything you needed to know about the story that was going on at the time all in that one issue so i i dove in at just the right point and then from there i didn't miss an issue um all the way up until when uh when mcfarland left the hulk and uh and then when he made the transition over to Spider-Man, I followed him over to Spider-Man and then started going back and hunting. All right, what else has this guy done? And I went back and I bought Infinity Inc. and all that. So I was a huge fan of McFarlane at that time. But then he just got too full of himself. And I started to kind of think, you know, he was, for one, he was just overexposed, um, you know, by the time of... Uh, getting to where, you know, he created the adjective list Spider-Man book. And then of course by spawn, I, I, I was just, I, I'd kind of fallen out of love with him at that point. Um, because 
he he did just get incredibly full of himself. He just really seemed to have this attitude of I, I can do no wrong whatsoever. I thought his art started to get a little lazy, to be honest, because of that killer rapping and because of him being so overexposed. But it was really when he, all of a sudden he thought, hey, I'm also a writer. And that's when he lost me because his Spider-Man run was shit. It was yes, so it was. bad. Yes, yes and, it was. And, you know, so when he transitioned out of mainstream and went to image, um, he, he, he to completely did. Well, I'm sorry. He didn't go to image. He found, well, you know, well, you image. know what I mean? I mean, when, when he, when he abandoned the mainstream to me, it was like the guy fell off the face of the earth because I I'm, <laughs> I'm the weirdest guy I know as far as comics in the nineties, because I missed that whole thing. Now I can, you know, I've never ever in my comic collecting career never been out of comics until you know recently. But you know, I, I collected solidly from the moment I made a decision as a kid to start collecting comics right up until you know just a few years ago. So I was actively collecting comics in the '90s. But the whole image and and Valiant and all that indie stuff, all that drama that ha I I just I missed it completely because I've never given two shits about anything that wasn't the big two. And so I just forged along buying my regular Marvels and DCs and completely ignored all the stuff on the fringes, Spawn being one of them. When when McFarlane disappeared, he might as well have been dead to me because I just I didn't know where he went and I didn't care. And the only uh, touchstone I've got with this particular issue is that somewhere, I don't know if either somebody gave it to me or I picked it up at a flea market or something, that first volume that collects what, like, I think it's like the first six issues or something like that. And I don't know that I ever even finished reading it. I think I started reading it just out of curiosity. And I remember reading this specific issue before, but I'm not sure how far I went beyond it. And it just, it gave me a weird feeling because on the one hand, I, I liked the art and it was kind of nice to see, you know, Todd again and what he'd gone on to and all that. But I didn't think a lot of the story, but more than anything, I, I've never been big on anything that gets deep into Satanism or, or, you know, having ties to hell or anything. It just gives me an uneasy feeling just because of the way I was raised, you know? So when I realized that it had all that going for it, it, it kind of lost me. And then again, his ego kind of put me off because I remember him, there was... I wish I could give you an exact quote, but there was some quote that he had that became this this big thing that was going around all the, the trade magazines for a while when he said, my, my spawn is going to be, one day is going to be bigger than Superman and Batman and Spider-Man. You guys remember that? He, he just got really full of himself and he was like, you know, Spawn's going to be a household name one day and all this. And I was like, yeah, I don't think so, buddy. <laughs> you know? He did get just, a movie made. Um, yeah, they they had the movie. They had the HBO mini, the animated series. Yeah, um, I, th you know, I think it, it probably, was... I think probably the whole thing that was the the pinnacle of that of him being full of himself was the the Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa home run yep. collection and all that. Yep, I think yep, that yeah, right. you know that he brings a completely and totally different genre in into the same wheelhouse, and you're just kind of like, okay, why? Right. Um, you know, and, and now, you know, he spent all that money and all that, that the um, publicity. And how much are those balls worth now? <laughs> you 
nowhere near what he paid for them because who would have known that you know that these this run would be broken in you know, less than a decade. Yeah, nobody nobody has any interest in Todd McFarlane's balls. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but you know, twenty years ago, people were saying that guy's got some balls. Mm-hmm. Actually, there was a there was a a panel in one of the issues of Spawn where um, Sam and Twitch on on stakeout somewhere. It flashes in with Sam doing a spit take with his coffee. He paid how much for a baseball? And you know, it was a, a very self-deprecating moment. Is it huh. recent? No, no, no. This was while the whole you know that while the whole chase was going on. Oh well, it was, it was you know with the, after you know, a couple of months after he actually bought the seventieth ball. Well, see, but then he thought he was still going to capitalize on him, so he was. Oh yeah. He was yeah. showing. So I don't know that that's self-deprecating. Yeah, I, I, I find I it hard it, to imagine him so. ever being self-deprecating. <laughs> if, if he was, I don't believe he was being genuine because I, I, I think the guy's got a huge ego. Yeah. That's probably been his downfall as far as uh, popularity among, you know, the general, po- genu- the general populace. Mm. You know, pe- people are turned off by that ego. I don't disagree with that. A little, little full of himself, I think. But otherwise, hell of a, hell of a, an artist. Oh, he's and got, the, he's got the, the artistic talent. I have no, yeah. uh, no qualms about that. And this is an issue where he was plainly in his prime, and and again motivated to do well. I do like the fact yeah. that it was dedicated to Jack Kirby. Yeah, that may be a little false modesty there, but at least it. Uh, it's a tip know. of the hat. Yeah, exactly to somebody who who is widely uh, credited for creating a universe. And I will say, having never actually read Spawn outside of the issues I talked about, uh, so I never saw it, and I never read the origin issues or anything. I had no problem following this, and I was reading it while we were doing the show. So it's not, <laughs> it's not, it's not, it's not deep reading. No. Uh, but it, it, it is clear on pretty much what it's trying to do. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I've, I've shown just tonight that I, I don't totally respect the guy's uh, attitude and all, but uh, no one's mistaking Todd McFarlane for uh, for what's his name? Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to oh, Alan Moore. Oh, oh no, no, or Howard Jenkins. <laughs> you might mistake him for Jenkins as far as a writer goes. <laughs> But uh, I mean, you know, again, I think conceptually, I think the character is uh, is very interesting. I, I can't speak as to execution because I've read so little of it. But you read issue one. Would you buy issue two? Yeah. Um, I think I probably would. I think this got me interested enough that I would have probably stuck with it at least for a while. It's hard to say for sure. By the time this came out, I might have been turned off a little bit by McFarlane. But, but just... Purely from a comic point of view, I think if I had picked this up on the newsstand, I probably would have gone for the next issue as well. Anyone else? Hey, what I miss? Everything. <laughs> wait, wait, where are y'all going? I was going to make espresso. And that's not the automated Bill bot either. That's right. It's Doctor Bill live at the end of the show. Well, well I got my I got my book ready. I've got the final con synopsis if you guys are ready to dive in. <laughs> this is the two hour synopsis of pages twenty one and twenty two. Yes. And the ad on the second page. That's only that's only because it's the abbreviated version. The abbreviated version. The abridged. You want to get the annotated version, it's six hours. 
Mm-mm-mm. So uh, why don't we uh, why don't we rate this book? Sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, you, it's your book, so you go first. Um, I think probably art, art wise, a story, B plus. Hi, Jeff. Minus. Hey, how's it going? Welcome. Um, over overall, yeah, probably an A minus on the book, just simply because of. of Hang on, I don't know. Can you give a grade on historical significance? I don't know. Uh, that's what, that's you what you know what? It's it's, I'm it's sticking to it. It's 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 your review. You can rate it however you choose. All right, so I'll, totally I'll give it a, I'll give it I'll give it a low A. Hey. That would be a low A. There you go. Mm. I think yeah. the cover is very nice, but I think I I don't know how much it jumps out at me. I don't know how much I would have really gone for this. Uh, I'm gonna say a B. It's, it's solid, but I don't think it's you know like spectacular. The interior art, I think again, I think McFarlane did bring his A game to it pretty much. And I'm I like McFarlane's art. I think the interior art I'm going to say an A. Uh, story wise, I keep going back to the same comment that conceptually I think it's pretty cool, but I think this issue doesn't really get all that deep into it. So I don't know. You know, maybe if you saw, if I read the whole arc, I might be willing to rate that higher. But just on its own, I'm going to say a B minus on the story, uh, and I'm going to give it an overall B. I'll go next. Um, yeah, the cover doesn't catch me. It looks sort of just, you know, it's someone on a cover. Right? And for a first issue, you've got to have something that makes you want to pick it up. Uh, so at best, it's a C cover. Um, as much as I enjoyed him on uh, Infinity, uh, I don't see anything in this art that really jumps out at me as being innovative or actually really that interesting. I mean, it's all, it was, you know, it's, it's nice poster art. In a lot of places, and that's about it. Um, and it's definitely McFarland. So, but it, it doesn't. It's nothing in it that makes me the, the panel layout or anything doesn't make me get pulled into the story. Um, so I'm I'm only going to go, you know, a B on the art. Uh, the story is, you know, like I said, I read it while we were doing the show. It wasn't that deep. It wasn't that hard to follow. Um, and doesn't actually go very far. So I'll give it a C. I'll say it's it's a that's all C plus comic. Unlike Ronald, I like the cover. I think the cover is, is a little Halloween-y. Uh, I think it would have been better off coming out at that time of year. Um, but I, I think the cover is eye-catching because it does have that, that glow. There's a darkness and there's kind of some mysterious content in there. And there's a glow right there towards the center that kind of draws you in. I, I like the cover a lot. I, I, I would give the cover an A-. minus. I really, I really like it, and I really like the coloring, by the way, of the whole book, including the cover. I just really like the overall look of it. Um, I would give the interior art an A. I, I just think it's Todd McFarlane. Now he's stealing, he's stealing liberally from Frank Miller in a lot of places, but in the overall, I just this is Todd McFarlane, who's one of the all-time greats, and he's and it's he's at the peak of his abilities here. Uh, I would give the cover an A. I'd give the interior art an A. The story, uh, Todd McFarlane is at the peak of his writing abilities as well, so I would give that a C minus. <laughs> and it's nothing that I would want to ever read. It's just not compelling. It's not interesting to me. It's not, uh, it, it, but it's pretty. It's damn pretty. And so, yeah, I think in the overall, I would give the book a, a B minus. Again, I, I kind of wait 
the art pretty, I mean, the, the storytelling pretty significantly. Uh, but it's a gorgeous book. It's great to look at. I'm glad I cracked it open. I don't think I'd be motivated to continue on. I only continued his Spider-Man out of love of the character and because I'm an anal completist. Uh, after I read the first arc, I just kind of went, what in God's name is this guy I think he's doing trying to write? And it didn't get any better from there. No, it did not. Mm-mm. So, Scott, you said a, a B minus. I said a C plus. Are we not mm-hmm. really splitting hairs here? No, you gave it a C plus and I gave it a B minus. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what hair is being split? Split a hair? <laughs> Sorry, I was just channeling my inner witch hazel. Hassan ah. <laughs> Chop. All right, Scott, what you got? Uh, you know, I, I was almost hoping you guys wouldn't call on me for this one because I'm, <laughs> I'm really torn when it comes wait, to something wait. like this. Wait, you want this. me to do it for you, Scott? Yeah, go ahead. Well, feeling the general esoteric malaise of the... I didn't know you knew any big words. Well, hey, you know, I got to bring my A game when the Rifen is around. That's right. The Rifenator. Please don't <laughs> feed the ego. Please don't feed the ego. <laughs> He's got to do two uh, other shows. Actually, I, I haven't read Spawn 1, I think, since it came out. So um, judging off of what I remember, uh, the countdown was kind of confusing, and I don't know if that ever got resolved. Uh, um, was that even in the first book, every time yep. he uses his power? Okay. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't explained, but it was there, and the whole concept was, was scrapped sometime before issue 50. Mm, probably as they got closer to ending, ending that number. Yeah, sort of like how Doctor Who's trying to figure out how they're going to regenerate again after Capaldi's character. After Capaldi's well, character has a stroke and dies on set because he's 100 years yeah. old? <laughs> Actually, he's not. He's a little bit younger than the oldest guy to play it, so he's really not as old as you think he is. Uh, he's. I'll just say this. He's about as old as Hartnell, and he brings a very Hartnell approach to the character. Mm. The cranky old Doctor. Well, no, they don't need to explain why he can regenerate. He was given a whole new cycle at the end of... Uh, Matt Smith's run. That was <laughs> was it a whole new cycle or was it one last regeneration? Nope, whole new cycle. I, I believe cycle. that was said. He was be, he was given a whole new cycle, so they're set for another fifty years. So it's wrong for the master to do it, but if the doctor does it, it's fine. Well, the master was killing people. Oh well, he was stealing regeneration energy. We can't. Have, yeah, we can't have that. Oh, but we can gift it to people. So anyway, this book. Yeah, from what I remember, it was pretty. Um, the, the I don't really remember much from the story other than um, Al was in hell and then he was out and he was a tool of hell and I remember the clown Obnoxio no it's not Obnoxio yeah. or maybe he wasn't even in that one so nope. I'll just say hey it was pretty to look at but it didn't really have much substance and I don't think it lasted so cover for memory mm, <laughs> which I can't remember at all I'll give it an A, and the story C, and the interior art, uh, I'll give it a B. So it makes it a B book that I haven't seen in, oh, whatever, for, since it first came out. What's that, like 25 years? 23 years. Oh, hey, pretty close. Yeah. There you go, Scott. Does that does that cut cover for you? Yeah. Okay. Sure. <laughs> wrong, Scott. Oh, wrong Scott. That was exactly what Scott was going to say. <laughs> or something like that. Yeah, I don't think he was going anywhere near that, actually. <laughs> Let me ask you, Scott, where you were torn on this book. Is it the art, the story, or both? Um, it's it's more of how can I judge it fairly? Because I, I, I think I think I have a, an emotional reaction that, that gets in the way of... I, I wouldn't feel like I was being completely fair with it. 
because I look at this now. Is it a gag and it's reflex? It's really hard for me to remember why I was such a, a McFarlane fan. Because I look, I don't want to say I'm embarrassed now about it, but I'm kind of embarrassed about it because I look at a lot of the McFarlane stuff now and I just look at it and go, man, this is all flash and no substance. And I know that that's not really true because Mike Bailey and I are just starting to get into the early uh, McFarlane issues of Infinity Inc. And that's where he made his bones. You know, that's where he learned his craft. And I look at that stuff and as rough as hell as it is, I can see, hey, this kid's got chops. He could be somebody one day. I, I guess maybe that's my problem with this is I look at this and I go... As much as it pains me to admit it, I think Scott Rifen's right. I think this is him at the height of his powers, and unfortunately, that ain't. It's not that great, you know. It's like this is as good as he ever got, and I think he had potential to really be one of the greats. I don't consider him one of the greats, unfortunately. I think he squandered his potential because he believed his own hype, and he never refined his craft to truly become what he could have been. If that makes any sense. Yeah, he made a zillion dollars and he became a millionaire and he runs his own company. Yeah, that's terrific for him. But somewhere in there, he sold out the great artist that he had the potential to become, if that makes any sense. And that kind of, you know, that makes me sad because I really liked him up until the point that he 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 lost me somehow. It's it's not that he ever jumped the shark. It's like he he avoided the shark altogether or something, you know. He went off to do this this book, which I don't want to slag it because I know it has its fans and everything, and I, I know that, that Jeff really appreciates it, but it, basically it comes down to I couldn't give a rat's ass about Spawn. And I guess that's what kind of annoyed me is like, you know, again, he, he was on this road to, to greatness with Marvel, and then he gave them the finger and goes off and does this. And when he left to do this, I stopped giving a shit about Todd McFarlane. And I haven't honestly really given a shit about him since. And which is know, weird because so. he speaks so well of you nowadays. <laughs> yeah. <I know>. <laughs> <laughs> and you know he went off and became a multimillionaire. I mean, I can't fault the guy at all for what well, he. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, and I don't. I don't at all. I mean, I don't. I don't begrudge him his success. You know, I'm happy for him and all that. You know, and and I'm sure he's he's infinitely better off being. You know, uh, an artist that never reached his potential, but he's, you know, he's making bank as opposed to an artist that became the greatest thing that comics ever saw, yet he struggles to pay his mortgage every month, you know? And and I know that that's the reality for a lot of those guys. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's, there's very few uh, of the great artists that died with money in their pockets, if you know what I mean. So well, it, I mean, it's Dave- a... I'm sorry? I was just going to say, you know, Dave Cockrum in his final days, they were soliciting donations for him like crazy. Exactly. And and so that's why I am so supremely torn about this, because I see this issue, Spawn number 1, as kind of representative of both of those worlds. The success of Todd McFarlane financially and business-wise and, and, and all of that, but I also see it very much as... Well, that that's the end of the guy that could have been, you know, the the next Neil Adams, and and that that part of that comic book fan part of me is sad about that, you know. But uh, you know, I, I freely admit he's, you know, there's no arguing he's much better off with the decision that he made 
you know, for his life and everything, you know, as far as money goes, because, you know, and just the fact that Neil Adams is, is continuing to do conventions and sketches and all the shit that he does tells me that even with him being Neil Adams, he's probably not a rich man. And that kills me because he deserves to be, but he's probably not. So, you know, the comic book thing is only going to go so far for, for any of these guys. So, you know, I don't know if any of that made any sense, but, I, you know, that that's how I feel about it. So, I don't know. No, I made, mean, but made big sense. The, the book on its own merits, um, the cover's... The cover's good. I mean, it's a good artistic cover. I, I think it's basically him just doing Spider-Man all over again with somebody in a different costume. Uh, I never much cared for the, the Spawn costume itself, so it, it's kind of hard to be fair about it. But I, I guess I'd have to give it a, I don't know, I, I guess a B plus, maybe even an A minus, because it's just, it, it could use a little refinement here and there. But it, it's very colorful, and I, I do like the layout of it, of the thing. The interior art is just a bitch for me to grade because I just look at this and I just see it as all flash, no substance. I really do. I, I think this is McFarlane at his laziest phase. At this point, he is Todd effing McFarlane, and I just don't think he's trying that hard. And then story-wise, gosh, it's, it's impossible for me to, to give it a fair grade because it just doesn't appeal to me. And in a lot of ways, I'll be honest, I, I think that this is, I think it's derivative. I think it's essentially melding Deathlock, Ghost Rider, and Spider-Man into one character. I, I see it as incredibly derivative of, of those three characters. So I don't think it's terribly original, and that hurts the story. I don't think he's a writer. You know, I wish he had just stuck with his strengths and drew pretty pictures but i think when he did both it somehow it, it weakened his overall product if if again if that makes any sense at all so overall grade for the entire book i'd probably say a c because i just see it as kind of you know c to me is a is an average grade and i see this as an average 90s comic so sorry if that's harsh but <laughs> that's just how i see it I don't know that it's an average '90s comic. It's kind of the the one that made the '90s comics what the '90s comics were. That's very true. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and when you say it, that that's very true. It's it's what gave the '90s its look. It it kind of set the tone yeah. for the average Better '90s. Worse, book. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's a good point. So Bill, you pretty much had it right. <laughs> oh, I don't want to leave it on a down note. Wah, wah. Yep. That's it. <laughs> Scott Gardner, Debbie Downer. Oh. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you at that point. I like the part where he did that thing, though. There you go. <laughs> well, I'm sorry I couldn't be here for the whole show. I, uh, oh, I we're not. That's okay. You weren't uh, Hey, I heard that, Scott. <laughs> oh. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of www.forumforgeeks.com. 
Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.libsyn.com and is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com slash league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. People need to stop sharing the 14 reasons to stop drinking Mountain Dew with me. <laughs> it ain't happening. Get off my ass. And they need to come up with the 15th. Why don't I just start taking crack or something, all right? That'll make you damn people happy. You know, so one thing I got in my life, I had to give up Mountain Dew and go to Diet Dew, and you, you, people still aren't happy. Uh. Just start smoking cigarettes or something else, huh? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, better have a combo. Here we go. <laughs>